There you go. The six pack lapidat. We have the fellas, data driven strength, and uh, there's a lot of buzz on you fellas, all over powerlifting. You're, you're popping up on. Um, obviously Johnny Candido's video, um, you had your own podcast. I've seen people reposting it. Um, I see you guys popping up on people's posts, memes. Mike T doesn't make memes. <laughs> Mike T is not a, known as a meme maker. Mike T made a meme. Other meme pages made a meme. People started recognizing your logo. It's what I was same here, man. I was like, oh shit. Like it's starting to be recognizable real quick. Um, so very interested. And I was like, okay, obviously we have to have these fellas on the podcast to chat about some of this and, um, ask for some research to catch up. And, um, I mean, fuck me, you guys did a good job. You guys are very well-spoken. Uh, the articles I seen, the videos I seen, and you guys are, are all over the place right now. So good stuff. I've got, we got Rory Lynch returning Rory, the Southern hemisphere hitman Lynch rolls off the tongue. And Arian Messi Kamesi. And uh, Josh, Zach, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Uh, Zach, I got your last name real easy, Robinson. My man, how do I uh, pronounce your last name? I don't want to butcher it. Pelland. Pelland? Yes, sir. Well, that was that was easy. All right, cool. And uh, all right, so just a stitch of background before we get into some of the research. Um, but how did you guys form? We kick it off, Josh. Um, yeah, so uh, Josh and I met um, in undergrad. Um, we both went to uh, Ohio State University to do our undergraduate degrees, um, caught up with each other in kind of the, the uh, rec centers there. Um, initially kind of met one another, just saw each other at the gym pretty frequently, started forming a friendship there. Um, originally started coaching a few people there as well, kind of where we formed uh, Data Driven Strength initially. Um, that's kind of where we both got uh, more involved in kind of the formal research process in terms of helping out with research in some of the labs at Ohio State. Um, and then eventually we ended up down here at FAU doing research under Dr. Michael Zordos. So that's kind of where we're at now. But um, yeah, along the way, Data Driven Strength has kind of come from a kind of a grassroots operation, um, helping out some friends at the gym, teaching them how to squat kind of from nothing to something now where we're kind of more focused on, you know, growing our coaching business, but also providing some education and uh, just trying to give as many resources to people that can use some of the scientific research. But our main goal is to make uh, that that kind of translation process applicable to pretty much every lifter, um, you know, kind of across the spectrum of people that are really interested in breaking down the details, but also people that just really want some practical takeaways that can really uh, implement into their own training, uh, you know, the next day in the gym. So that's kind of our overall mission and kind of where we've came from. Josh and I have pretty much identical backgrounds, but I don't know if he wants to clean up anything. So it's not too <laughs> exciting, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, where we started and kind of where we are now. Uh, what were you guys going to school for? Exercise science. So pretty, okay. pretty lame, pretty lame there as well. I thought it would be I, I, that. Well, actually, actually, Josh started as Josh, go ahead. Actually, you started something different, I believe. Yeah, I, I was a biomedical engineering major for about oh, four shit. weeks. Quick, <laughs> quickly <laughs> realized it wasn't for me. Um, so uh, it was only about one year that I was I was in the engineering program. Um, and then yeah, I was like, man, I just have no desire to do this. So you thought you were sweet on the first that. day on campus, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> It was a lot easier to explain to people when you're a biomedical engineer <laughs> than an exercise science major. <laughs> so Rory, you did it for four weeks as well? I did it for four years. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was going to say I did, I did the whole undergrad for uh, mechanical engineering. So I did the whole four years as well. So we're all, smokes, man. We're, we're I all did marketing. 
Yeah, I well, I did marketing, but uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and uh, this over at Ohio State University, were you guys involved with the powerlifting team at all? Since they have a powerlifting team that competes in USAPL. So we had we had a ton of friends that were on the powerlifting team. We weren't intimately involved ourselves, but yeah, knew knew pretty much everybody. All of our friends were pretty much intimately involved. Knew some of the presidents and stuff. So yeah, it, it definitely was familiar with it, but we weren't super super involved ourselves. Initially, were you guys into like? Did you foresee you get into powerlifting with this, or or was it just in general your in terms of exercise science with all sports? I, I was actually reflecting on this recently. Um, I think Zach and I. I think I speak for both of us in that we kind of just like to lift weights and instead of like, okay, we're starting data-driven strength and it's a powerlifting coaching company. Like it kind of like the powerlifting coaching kind of came to us, not mm -hmm. to say that we don't love it. We, we mm -hmm. it's been awesome. Um, but as opposed to kind of proactively seeking out powerlifting, it kind of, you know, powerlifters started to approach us and we're like, this is awesome. Um, so yeah, kind of just like general strength training, like into lift weights, that kind of thing to start. Yeah, I think we were both pretty much interested in going kind of the more traditional strength conditioning route initially. I know I did a very brief stint of being in Ohio State uh, football equipment manager with hopes of eventually kind of making my way onto the strength conditioning staff and quickly realized, um, you know, waking up at three o'clock in the morning to be at the field to start setting up practice for the athletes at like 345 just really wasn't uh, for me. <laughs> so um, that that was a that was a rough kind of eye opening experience. And, and that, you know, like Josh said, that kind of naturally navigated us towards uh, more of the strength sport uh, avenue. And I think I think it's it's pretty natural just because of the objective nature of it. You know, it's kind of our name, the data driven strength. Sometimes we regret that. Maybe we'll touch on that later. But um, the objective nature of kind of evaluating progress with numbers and, and powerlifting does a great job of that, obviously. And um, that that fits totally with kind of like what we like to do. So definitely maybe wasn't our initial plan, but, you know, we have ended up here and I think for a very good reason. Hey, man, that's the way life works, man. You know, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, uh, listen, pull me aside when I was 17, ask me what I wanted to be. And God knows, right. You just, yeah, uh, you, you go with the flow, but I, I know you mean like a lot of sports, for instance, football, they use numbers. They think to try to gauge, obviously they have like how quickly you run the 40 and they have the combine numbers that they have. Right. But there is a football IQ. There is like these kind of, with all sports, there's like the hockey IQ. And, um, they talked about how, obviously Brock Lesnar famously went to the UFC and then before the UFC he was like I want to go into football and they're like you have all the numbers athletically speaking in terms of what you can do number wise but he went to training camp he was the last cup but like you just don't have the football IQ and if that's something that intrigues you uh powerlifting is just straight numbers it's almost like you know the background how much can I play with these numbers move things around and understand you know, and it's all numbers based writing that formula. It's, it's all calculations. And then you go and on test day, it's straight numbers again. You know, if that's your thing and you find powerlifting, it couldn't have been a better marriage. For sure. There, there's definitely, I definitely want to caveat this with there are, there are, there are soft skills to powerlifting coaching for sure, but it definitely does lean on the more analytical side. And I think that's a large reason why I think we've kind of fallen in this population um, I, I started coaching team sport athletes. I wasn't up at 3 a.m., um, but I, I was working in like a like a warehouse strength and conditioning place, 110 degree days, no AC, working with like four athletes at a time. And you can only do so much anal uh, analytics wise like that. Yeah. We had like this um, 
this like brown paper on the wall where we would like try and loosely track everybody's training data. That was my favorite part, but you just don't have time for it. Right. Um, so the objective nature is, is definitely something we really like, but there, there are subject subjective factors and, and a soft side as well, but, but less so than, than some of that stuff you were mentioning. Well, it's <clears throat> the thing with, uh, like when it comes to numbers, like numbers don't lie. If you have a theory, it's easier to prove. I don't got to tell you fellas with numbers though. Whereas with other factors, like somebody on the football field, hockey rink, basketball, whatever, there are a lot of factors that can go into play. If you're trying to make a, a program to make them a better basketball player, you know, somebody could argue, well, you didn't impact them that greatly. This is actually one of the, one of the most interesting things about kind of Louis Simmons and Westside. I always found just fascinating is like Louis always talked about um, a lot of the older stuff. Like he just doesn't like training people that, you know, he can do his best job increase their squat, increase their speed, increase all of these metrics very objectively and say that they got stronger, faster, uh, can jump higher, all that stuff. And then they would go suck at whatever sport they did anyway. So he's, <laughs> he said he had a really hard time with that. So he started just uh, limiting who he helped. Because I know he, he like a lot of football players would come to him and that kind of stuff. And he'd improve their 40, which would be great for like a draft or whatever. But sometimes they'd still suck at football. So he was like, <laughs> I'll probably limit myself to track athletes and powerlifting and stuff like that. So I always thought that was interesting. But uh, yeah, that I definitely agree with kind of what you said is like the in team sports and in sports that have a reactive component especially with multiple people it's uh there's just so many more factors that go into it so it's definitely a little bit more of a different equation even like <clears throat> justifying what you brought to the table sometimes after the fact can be somewhat mitigated where if it's numbers man numbers don't lie it kind of is what it is it's interesting you said louis simmons <clears throat> he isn't somebody that we get brought up too often but is he, who are some of the people that when you were coming up, you look towards in terms of strength and conditioning coaches or that you might've studied? Man, we, I, th I feel pretty lucky in that we, we were under really good influences right away. Um, I would say that, you know, Zach kind of mentioned how we met each other at Ohio state The we did meet each other at kind of the rec centers, but we also, where we actually started to, to talk regularly and realize that we kind of clicked as like, as buddies, um, we, we realized we both like read all of stronger by sciences stuff by Greg, by Greg knuckles. Um, we're like, Oh, you know what RPE means? Like, and you can actually have like an in-depth discussion about this. Like, this is sweet. So luckily we, we kind of fell on some really good early influences that, that emphasized, you know, rational skepticism, good critical thinking skills, guys like Greg knuckles, Dr. Eric Helms, um, our, our current advisor, Dr. Michael Zordos. Um, and, and I'm sure I'm missing some, but yeah, it, I, th I feel pretty grateful that, you know, those, those guys were putting out stuff online when we were kind of, you know, starting to learn about this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely had, I definitely had a period of time where it, like earlier on, like I I've been consuming probably more fitness content than I should. But since I like the time I was 13, I still remember watching Omar Yusuf videos when I was 13, like late at night and just like binging every single thing I possibly could on his channel. So like I went through, I've been through multiple phases. Like there was a time, like you'd go through like the typical YouTube fitness phase where, you know, you, the people that are a little bit more aesthetic focused, stuff like that. But I, I was really into, um, I've always been interested in like the athletic outcomes a ton. So like speed jumping, that kind of stuff. So I, I stumbled across like West side stuff and, and stuff like that pretty early on. Um, uh, so yeah, that, in addition to all the things Josh said, I think I had like when I was a little bit younger, uh, starting strength, Mark Ripito, all those kind of things that kind of, you kind of go through that natural evolution of, um, yeah. things that are a little bit simpler. And then, you know, you kind of graduate to, you know, 
fives aren't actually better they're not magical kind of thing but <laughs> yeah it's clearly still debated of course uh, um, but, but that kind of thing um, but yeah there's a ton of ton of uh, influences i think um and i think all the thing i always like to say too is like you may not agree with every single thing some of those past coaches say but i still think you can take valuable information from every single one of them and, and, and apply it to kind of your ongoing process of thinking um, just to, just to make sure that you don't make the same mistakes or you capitalize on the same things that they did well. So yeah, that's kind of. Yeah. Well said. First off, <clears throat> we all stand on their backs to went first. <laughs> so it's really easy to look back and this happens exactly. not just in, in powerlifting, but like all science and every, all philosophers. It's like, yeah, we're, we're building off what they already did though. Exactly what you said, where they have trial and error, especially before social media and sharing knowledge is so easy. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that Louis Simmons, there's a lot of like MMA fighters. I like the sport that I like to follow. We were talking about this in the group chat we put together for this episode. He does a lot of strength and conditioning for these guys, for a lot of other sports, like jujitsu guys, et cetera, all follow him. I didn't know this. Like I see him popping up in their Instagram um, relatively often. And it's weird because I, I don't know, is he, is he more known for working with other athletes than he is in powerlifting at this point? Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm not the person to talk about multi-pie powerlifting or, or the equip side of things, right. but I'm, I, I'm sure, I'm sure he's extremely well known over there still on the powerlifting end. But I do know, like he, he's talked about, I, I probably follow this stuff better than I realize because all this stuff's coming to my head. But um, like he's talked about working with a, a fighter named Matt Brown for a really long yes. time. Again, I'm not, I'm not a UFC um, tight follower by any means, but I know he's, he's worked with fighters for a really long time. Um, I think that's something he always said if he kind of had an athletic career, to do over again, fighting would be something he would pursue. So I just, I think, I think he's been doing that for a while, but it's an interesting question. I don't know. I'd kick it to anyone else to kind of have a take on that. So how did powerlifting end up finding you guys? Like you said, I think a lot of our buddies um, in undergrad were, were pretty into powerlifting. Um, and then by just putting stuff out online related to our direct interests, there, there there's a very large powerlifting community on, on the internet and i think a lot of people kind of realized that it was relevant um and it kind of worked backwards that way um the internet it's a wonderful thing man and and i think the the powerlifting community kind of just like started to realize that what we were doing was relevant um and then word of mouth from there um you know we, we lucked out with a few people willing to try us out early on and we didn't mess it up too bad um and and you know grew from there yeah, don't too much to add i agree yeah. Okay. So it brings us to some of your findings in terms of powerlifting. And, um, and this is where Arian and Rory, I know you guys have done some research too. So I'll, I'll lead on you guys to ask some follow-up questions, but let's dive into some of the programming. Cause this is where, where you guys obviously excel. And um, so let's let, maybe let's start where you first began with this research and what you started finding in terms of, RPE and uh, the findings with it. I can, I can kick this off and then, and then pass it to you, Zach. So originally, you know, we, we've kind of recently talked a lot about potentially lower average RPE um, sets for powerlifting. Um, we can get into some of the technicalities there, um, but for now, I think we can kind of think of it as just lower average RPE um, back off work. And, and to kind of take a few steps back where we originally realized this was an area that the, the, the general recommendations were maybe a little misaligned, or at least the conceptual lens that people thought of it was 
potentially misaligned with the research findings um, was when Zach and I did a literature review. Um, and basically that just means we went through all of the relevant studies um, looking at proximity to failure for muscle growth or for hypertrophy. So meaning how close to failure should I train to get as jacked as possible? So we, we, we spent a few months going through all the research for that. Um, and we were, we worked on an article for that. We never actually published it largely because Greg Knuckles put out an awesome article that it was 10 times better than ours. And it was um, terrible. Yeah. Ours was absolutely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but, but during that literature collection, we, we had a column in our spreadsheet that also j just, you know, so we had it there, the strength outcomes. And we just kept realizing over and over, we're like, man, the lower RPE groups or, or the groups training farther from failure, they're often seeing better progress or at least equal progress. And they're not training nearly as hard or they're doing less volume, something like that. And we're like, something is going on here. Um, so at that point, we're like, okay, we should look into this further. Like, like something isn't really aligning. Um, and, and Zach, I, I'll pass it to you at this point, because you started working with a guy named John Hanley, um, who doesn't have a, a, a large like Instagram presence, but he's, he's really popular over on a, a, a forum called Exodus Strength. Um, he, he deserves a massive following because he's, he's a very, very smart guy, very good thinker, but I'll pass it to you, Zach, cause, cause you work directly with him. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think Josh is summarizes the first bit of it really, really well. And so kind of the, the online presence that, that literature viewer kind of when we went through the relevant research was from was kind of from a what's called the effective reps hypothesis from Chris Beardsley, which the kind of overarching theme of that kind of idea is that the last five reps in a set to failure are kind of the ones that count. And so that was kind of his working model for hypertrophy. We have a little bit of a different interpretation, but for the most part, I think his ideas are relatively sound in terms of muscle growth. Now, I was just kind of poking around on uh, some strength forums because I'm a nerd. And like Josh said, I kind of ended up on Exodus Strength and they, they have some really, really interesting stuff. And I found uh, a couple of threads by this guy named John Hanley, who kind of was discussing this theory, especially in terms of strength and made some really, really interesting arguments kind of countering it and um, talking about things from a little bit of a different lens and potentially recommending some more of this submaximal training style. And so that really got me thinking. I started working with John. Um, now this is where the anecdote comes in. I had a super, super stubborn bench press and John had me doing this training that was like nothing I've ever done. Tons of tons of sets of two and three reps, somewhere in the 75 to 85% of 1RM range. Almost all of them were extremely submaximal RPE. Of course, I still had some very, very specific practice working up to some heavy singles pretty regularly, but I finally broke that bench press plateau, which was kind of like, okay, this is the, the anecdotal experience. I need to look into this a little bit further. So I tapped Josh on the shoulder. I was like, hey man, we should probably go through this, this strength stuff again. And so we started going through it as Josh said, and, and we kind of compiled it in a little bit more of a, um, you know, an analytical way to look, kind of look at the numbers and stuff. And we realized, as Josh said, the, the lower RPE groups, or, or at least the lower average RPE groups seem to get essentially equal strength gains. So they're, they're getting the same strength gains with training, not as, as difficult with ultimately is going to come with less fatigue, which is generally a positive thing um, in most cases. So conceptually, how does this actually impact what, what we do as coaches or what we do as lifters? The working model that people often understand, whether you're a new lifter or you're kind of a, a more experienced lifter, is specificity is king. Specificity matters. We have to train for what we do on the platform, which is ultimately a, a rep at a maximal effort, a rep at a 10 RPE. 
Um, and so what we started to think about was, okay, what, what is that ultimately testing? And on the platform, what we're testing is force production. So force production is just the, just the grand idea of what we're actually doing on the powerlifting platform. And so we started using that as our lens to kind of evaluate this research to say, okay, what is the actual mechanistic explanation of why this actually makes sense? If, if all things I've ever read on strength and strength sports in general is that I need to train specifically and the one RM is a 10 RPE, all my sets should be close to that if I want to train specifically. Right. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be exactly counter to what we saw in the research. So like, what the heck's going on here? And so from the idea that what we're testing on the platform is force production, this is where we get back to kind of Louis Simmons and his bolstering of the, the old school physics equation of force equals mass times acceleration. So if we have a given weight, so let's just say 80% of one RM, the slower that we move that load, we're actually decreasing force production. So if you think about it, if I have 80% on the bar and I'm going to do it for a set to failure, which is you know generally going to be about eight reps for people, that first rep is actually going to be the one with the greatest force production for that load. And so as you get closer to failure, the reps are actually getting less specific. And so that kind of seemed to be the working model and kind of the working hypothesis that we started to come around to like, hey, this might be what the explanation is of why these groups that are actually training uh, farther from failure seem to get the strength, uh, the same strength gains because those reps early in the set at a given load seem to be providing the biggest bang for our buck is kind of the way we like mm. to put it. So in general, it's not that they were getting better gains. And we have some, so we have some speculations of why that's that way in the research and, and why we think you should probably do this in practice and think it ultimately will benefit you. But in the research, they seem to be about the same. So those reps at the beginning of the set probably are providing the biggest bang for our buck, because if we just cut those reps off the end, we get the same strength gains. So that's kind of the way we kind of started to frame this in terms of force production is that, okay, if force production is ultimately what we want to train for on the platform, which is going to be a single at a 10 RPE, let's make sure we have some, and this is a very, very important part that often gets overlooked when we're talking about this and we didn't get enough time to address this in length on the Candido video, I don't, I don't think, is that it's still very, very, very important to practice skills with heavy loads because ultimately, although when you're doing like back off sets or volume work, having those sets be probably low RPE at that given load is probably better. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be practicing high RPE sets to make sure you can grind, you know what a single feels like, you know what heavy loads feel like on your back. But the reason that that RPE is actually going to go up is because you're adding weight to the bar, not because you're tired. So it's kind of a two, two different ways to get to a higher RPE there. The, fo the former doing sets closer to failure at a given load is probably less specific to force production, but adding more weight to the bar or getting closer to that single at a 10 RPE is more specific in terms of force production. So again, just to recap, what we're recommending is still have a very solid dose for the individual of those sets that are really high in load that allow you to practice the test on a frequent basis. But when you drop the load back to get your volume in for muscle growth, just additional practice, whatever the reason is, might be a better idea that once you've selected the load that you're going to use 80%, 85%, 75%, somewhere in that range, maybe it's a better idea to split however many total repetitions you're going to do. Maybe instead of three sets of 10 for 30 total repetitions, maybe we split that into six sets of five or even less than that. And, and that will kind of accomplish the goal of making more of those reps high force production, which is ultimately going to be specific to a one RM. So Josh, go ahead, claim any of that up that I missed 
or anybody's got questions off that. I, I don't have anything to add. And I know that Zach said this, but I just want to make this abundantly, abundantly clear that we are not saying to do speed work with like 40% of your one rep max or even 60% of your one rep max. The point is once you are at a given load, not we're not saying to do everything at RP negative 15 because you're you're using 50% of your one rep max. Once you select your load, we're saying that the, the first reps that you perform within a set at that load are the most specific. So I just mm -hmm. want to make that very, very clear um, and reemphasize that. And that's because you've seen that velocity means a lot in terms of um, like the slower the velocity. And there's something that previously, you know, previous generations didn't really have a firm grasp in. I'm, um, I'm a little older. I remember like pre-social media. Okay, Arian, take it easy. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. You can mute your mic when you're not talking. Um, but uh, <laughs> I remember pre social media when, um, yeah, it, you just didn't take it into account at all. If you were grinding, if you were slow, it's fine. You're a power lifter. Moving slow is fine, but velocity matters a lot more than people think. We never would have thought about getting velocity meters and checking and seeing, look at your velocity. Let's talk a little bit about how velocity matters. And it's not just that it has to be, does it have to be moving? A certain speed or is everyone has their own natural speed they're going to move the bar at a certain point so it's just a difference between per lifter or let's talk a little bit about that for anyone listening zach you want to tackle that or you want me to sure, I, can give, I can give a shot um so i think first and foremost um velocity does matter but it's still going to always be relative to the individual. So my one RM velocity is going to be different than Josh's, which is going to be different than all three of you guys. Um, so velocity is definitely a relative number. Um, I, I suppose the, the, the thing that I guess matters in the context of this conversation is some research that looked at what's called velocity loss. To be really, really simple, they take the, the speed of the first rep of your set and then they take the speed at the last rep you're set. And they kind of look at the percentage loss between the numbers between those reps. Um, and so that was kind of the, the first line of research that kind of gave us an indication. Um, there's, and there's some limitations to this research. Um, it's not volume equated. Um, and for one example, that's, that's kind of one limitation of this research. But if, for example, they have a couple of different velocity loss conditions. So one group had 0% velocity loss. One group had 10% velocity loss. One had 20% and 40%. So those numbers kind of scale. The more velocity loss you have, the closer those sets are going to failure. So that's, that's really all it needs to be. So if we have 75% of one RM on the bar, the 0% velocity loss group literally did one single repetition and the 40% velocity loss group took almost all their sets to failure, but not all of them. And so essentially what we saw there was that velocity loss seems to indicate that the greater velocity loss you have or the more sets that you take close to failure doesn't seem to add um, any additional strength gains. And actually, if you go overboard and take those set majority of those sets to failure, your strength gains actually go down a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of indicated to us, although they're not volume equated, which again, it's another limitation, those sets, those reps at the er uh, beginning of the set are providing the majority of the strength stimulus because you're getting a lot, lot of strength gains for almost zero training volume. So those reps must be really, really potent for, uh, for strength stimulus, if that's the case. Um, and so velocity matters in the context of this conversation in that we don't want to have a ton of velocity loss when we're performing our volume work. If the goal is short to moderate term strength, that's probably something we'll come back to again, is that a lot of this conversation, um, we believe that it's kind of a part of a bigger kind of 
plan and that isn't necessarily something you should do all the time. But if you're training and, you know, you have a strength test or a meet within the span of, you know, eight to 16 weeks or something like that, maybe then this is something you're going to employ in a majority of your training. Um, cause we think that's kind of when it's the most appropriate, but maybe for hypertrophy, for example, or like a longer term, uh, block, maybe that's when we want to take some more sets closer to failure for a, a variety of reasons. But, um, coming back to the velocity thing, I'm trying to touch on anything else, but Josh, go ahead. Yeah. I just to, to make this hopefully nice and clear for the listener, it's not anything inherently valuable about moving fast there is inherent value to moving a given load as fast as you can. So like Zach is saying, okay, we put our 10 rep max load on the bar. By the time we get to rep eight, nine, 10, we're moving it much slower than those first couple reps because our force production capacity is lower, right? We're not as strong at the end of the set um, because you're tired. Um, so we're saying to do more reps that are closer to the, the velocity of that first rep of the set because you're producing maximum force. And again, that's, that's not to say that there's inherent value to speed itself, but speed at the given load. So hopefully that, that, you know, makes it nice and clear. Yeah. Just to be so super simple. A... Don't get tired. That's pretty much really <laughs> With, within the set, within the set. That's right. Rory, are you going to say something, my man? Yeah. So looking at this, looking at this superficially, you might look at this and say, Hey, this is the same as Westside does with their power training. Right. But, but power typical Westside power training has done it sort of 25 to 45% of your, of your one rep max. Whereas what you're talking about is not that at all. It's more like sort of 70 to 85%. You're still doing, you know, like sensible training weights. It's still hard enough to, to be causing a strength stimulus, but you're doing it for a moderate number of reps and, and at a, relatively high uh reps and reserve very well said yeah very well so said. so would this kind of look like then if you were thinking about programming and again it sounds like we're talking more about peaking programming so we'll, we'll stay on that uh because you were saying you know if you you wouldn't probably do this all year round so because you need to get maybe longer rep ranges in your sets but are we now looking at then sticking closer to what rep ranges would these sets be did you find did some of the studies show, because uh, not everyone's going to have this, you know, people's judgment on their own velocity. If you're training alone, could be a little off and everyone has these velocity meters. So is there a rep range that you think people would be best off? So I think, I think here's the, here's the easiest way to think about it. Um, initially we kind of, you know, we got super geeky about this and we like kind of framed our recommendations to be in this Goldilocks zones of velocity loss. And like, this is kind of how we framed it. But in reality, like we've kind of shifted away from that and just went purely conceptually and you don't even need a velocity measurement or even really need to think about that at all. Really all it is, is once you've decided what weight you want to use. And, and then again, that's going to be programming specific, context dependent, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But let's just say 80%. All I need to do there is break up this, the amount of total repetitions that I want to do into enough sets that subjectively, I don't really feel like the bar is slowing a ton. That's as literally as simple as it needs to be. So for some people that could be 
they, um, and this, and this is the part that's pretty individual rates of decay and velocity, um, or people's ability to kind of buffer those metabolites that you feel when you're doing high rep sets seems to be fairly individual. So some people, because maybe they hate doing a ton of sets, um, and, and maybe they want to have a few more reps per set. So it doesn't take as many sets to do it. Maybe they break up their 16 total repetitions at 80% into four sets of four or something like that. But maybe another person is like, I, when I get to rep three, man, my bar speed starts to tank. My technique goes to shit, that kind of thing. Let's do eight sets of two with that person. And, and it's really as simple as that. And so I think if you want to be kind of foolproof, you'd probably go lower on the repetition side just to make sure that there's not a ton of velocity decay. The, the one kind of critique people often make of this is like, okay, that makes sense, but I don't have four hours to train. And so that, that's kind of the, the thing we like to point out um, pretty originally is like, we wouldn't recommend taking five minute rest periods between all of these sets. I think because you're limiting so much of the intraset fatigue or the, um, the amount of fatigue that you're incurring set by set, you can be pretty intuitive with your rest periods and auto-regulate them from, you know, I've done bench sets where I'm literally resting 15 to 30 seconds all the way up to, you know, three minutes. And so the, the amount of work that you're completing is actually pretty similar to like, a, if you were to do that more in a traditional setup of three to five sets of whatever repetition range. So as long as you're the, the challenging portion is staying mentally focused, not going on your phone, not doing anything like that in a, in a training session in order to make that a time efficient way to train, but it can be done is the, is the way we like to think about it. But to answer your question is, I don't think there needs to be a measurement of the velocity or anything like that. I think the, the super practical training nugget is take the weight that you want to use, the amount of total repetitions that you want to complete and break it up into as many sets as you feel is going to allow you to subjectively keep the bar speed as high as you possibly can. And then you kind of auto regulate your rest periods from there to keep everything in a manageable range. Yeah. I think a, a, a practical example of this might be helpful. Um, so again, like Zach said, we don't necessarily do this year round. Um, but that, that's kind of a discussion for another time. But just, just to provide context on this example, um, a, a few weeks ago, Zach was in one of these, like what we call like quote unquote, lower fatigue blocks where he was, you know, limiting the velocity loss within a set. And he was training his bench press and he was doing, I believe, 82 and a half percent for like nine sets of two. I, on the other hand, I think uh, I was doing like 75% for sixes or something like that. So I was doing less total sets, right? But like the, the, the average RPE was a little bit higher, but Zach on the other hand was doing a bunch of sets, which in isolation, each set wasn't super hard, but that session in general was way, was way harder for Zach than it was for me. So the reason I'm pointing this out is because a lot of people will say, oh, you're advocating for lower average RPEs. You guys are advocating for, for training very easily and just hoping you can kind of sleepwalk through the gym and get stronger. <laughs> When I, I actually think this, this way of training is oftentimes harder. Again, each set in isolation might not be as grueling, but to stay focused for nine, 10 sets of two at 82 and a half percent. Um, and like Zach said, not go on your phone. And then the next thing you know, it's a five minute rest period. Um, because again, you don't need these super long rest periods. We find that those sessions can almost be harder. Um, so I, that a gives you an example of, you know, the differences in protocol. So that's an example, 82 and a half percent for a bunch of doubles. Um, and, you know, kind of hopefully clears it up that it, we're not advocating for, for sleepwalking through the gym. The last thing I'll say, cause I remember your original question now and I didn't even answer it, but uh, hopefully it was along the lines <laughs> Bless uh, you. In, in terms of repetition range, generally now there's going to be some outliers, 
Um, the, the case there would be outliers if somebody can perform a ridiculous amount of repetitions at a given percentage of one RM. So let's, I have a client, for example, I talked about it a ton who can perform like 12 reps at 80% of one RM and with like sub max RPs, it's absolutely ridiculous. So yeah. her, her, she's a little bit of a different case than, than others, but typically I would say the repetition ranges are going to be somewhere between two to five, two to six, something like that. So it's going to be on the lower repetition end of the spectrum. But again, from a practical perspective, and just to be safe, I would probably say two to four is probably a really safe place to be for most loading ranges. And obviously the heavier you go, you're probably going to have to cut that down a little bit just to avoid the, the decline in bar speed. So I'll, I'll shut up now and let you let you ask the next question but i wanted to make sure i answered what you actually asked <laughs> go ahead Rory. go ahead in some ways this is uh like kind of reminiscent of the sort of old school russian way of training isn't it like if you think back to the the shako numbered programs that often have you doing say 10 sets of squats in a day and it'll be like five sets of three at 80 percent, followed by five sets of five at 70 percent, and like each one of those sets in isolation is going to be like rpe two to four um but you do 10 of them and then you do that multiple times a week and it, and it stacks up to a, a lot of practice. It stacks up to a lot of reps with really high force production and it adds up to quite a lot of fatigue as, as people have done that know by the time you get to like week three or four of doing that. And you're like, oh, I started feeling a little bit run down, you know? Um, so, so in, in, in some ways this is, this is a, a throwback to uh, the training styles that have been used in the past, though, though haven't been popular lately. For sure. Uh, I'd say the biggest addition is, is the inclusion of regular yeah. heavy top sets. That would be the yeah. biggest addition, but definitely resembles it. So, so very well said again, Rory. And I think that's clear to, to say that this is something we always like to reiterate too. We're not reinventing the wheel by any means. This is totally. not, not our idea. This is not something we came up with. We just looked at some, some stuff that we had already pulled up for another reason. And we, the, the main, I guess, addition, if we had to say that we did add anything, it's just a different way to conceptualize it from the force production perspective um, that kind of tied things together, tied things together and make it made a little more sense. Um, just to hammer on what Josh said too, is that's, that's something I just like to hammer home too, is that in terms of force production, which is kind of the way we like think about this too, is load is always going to win. So it's really, really important that we do have those top sets in there because if we value force production, if that's what we're saying that we're trying to train specifically for, it's really, really important that we have those top sets because load is way, way more impactful on force than just keeping a given velocity or given load at a, at a high velocity. So that, that's a really, really important addition. But yes, Shaco's programs with top sets is essentially what it is, which again, a ton of people have had success with. So it's, it's pretty similar to that. Interesting stuff. Um, yeah, no, I was going to say, after I seen uh, you guys initially, you know, I seen the videos, heard the podcast, read a bit about it. And then I knew you were coming on. I told myself, let me try a little bit of this because we're going to talk about it. Let me try firsthand. And what you were saying in terms of, trust me, it doesn't make it easier. So I was, I put on a weight and I was like, okay, this should be a fairly comfortable weight and I'm going to do fours. And this should be a weight that's like, I basically took the weight I would take for, for eights and I kept the same weight. It did fours, but it did twice as many sets. So I did an exact amount of reps. So kind of a little bit loosely, we guys said like, this isn't overly scientific with it, but I had to try this out to see what it felt like. And um, so during it, yeah, I felt quick, even though, even by the last like sets, I was like, I for sure am working. I can tell yep. I'm working because when you come yep. back to scratch and you're at fucking set eight, don't tell me you're not mentally like, Jesus, well, yep. here we go. Yes, it's hard work. A, 
B, yes, I'm still moving the bar quickly because the weight, it's weird. I like, it's true for anyone listening that you think because a weight is what you're doing for eights and now you're doing it for fours. By the time you get to the eighth set, you will get under the bar, you unrack it. You're like, if it doesn't feel super bad. It's relatively light and you're hitting it and the speed's moving, but you are working. And the next day I felt it through the glutes and hammies were a little toasty. I was like, I worked yesterday differently than I'd previously been working. I could tell there was a difference. Now this was again, small, you know, in terms of just a few days leading into this, but um, I can say antidotally, yes, it is not easy work. You're, if you think that's what you're signing up for, you're going to yeah. be rattled at, by the end of the day. You'll be like, holy shit, it's, it's set eight now and we're still working and keep that bar moving quick, by the way, like tell yourself, I got to go. If it's going to be this light, we got to work. We got to move quickly then let's know, you know, it's yeah, it's, it's a lot of work to it. Um, have that, you guys, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say the, the way you kind of set that up is, is almost exactly how we would suggest you do so. Um, so it makes yeah. that. Yeah. And, and also the intent of moving each repetition as fast as possible. Something we, we cue our athletes, uh, as well, obviously, you know, you're not going to leave the floor, but as you initiate the bottom of a squat, trying to be as intentful as possible, going back to what Zach said of, you know, the, the basic physics equation of force equals mass times acceleration. If you are accelerating the barbell, uh, a given mass faster, your force production is higher. Um, so just wanted to add that in there that, you know, it makes me happy that you, you applied it so well. God, God I'm awesome. sipping the snake oil already. It, um, it, but, it, was, <laughs> it was easier said than look, like I literally pulled up my usual volume block, which had tons of sets of eights. And I was like, this is a perfect number to chop in half. And on the surface, at least hopefully be chopping the RPE in half, just, you know, roughly. Mm -hmm. And holy shit, it worked. Like I was moving quickly, but oh, holy shit that I feel it. And it definitely works. And I was like, this is very interesting. I did it for bench. I did it for across the board squats, deads. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely a whole different approach and the bar speed didn't slow down. And um, I mean, it was a microcosm of it, but I would be interested in seeing incorporating, you know, some heavy singles at the top and, you know, get the, like you had said previously, Zach, where um, you want the load. You need to get the load in, but if you're going to get some work, you know, after you do the big, sexy, heavy work and stuff that's never going to see Instagram and you got to get the real work in and you're going to be there for a while. Um, if you chop the weight down or just exactly the same math I did, that is a workload. Let me tell you. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of what you're saying, Josh, is you are not going to be leaving the floor with squat, like hundreds of pounds on your back. But yeah. when you were moving as fast as you can in that, it feels faster, um, but it's not going to look like you're standing up from a chair. You're working. You have hundreds totally. of pounds on your back still. But the like you had said, it's more the mentally cueing, let's go. Let's move quick. Yep. There's a reason why the weight has been chopped in half. The sets have been chopped in half. Let's move here. We're not, you know, tempoing this. I actually had a question about that, though, um, because it's, it's interesting, you know, for somewhat we see cycles and trends when it comes to training and powerlifting, right? And um, I'm not sure this trend necessarily is over, but how do you feel about, for instance, tempo? I've, or in some of your literature you talked about, is there a place for tempo or even pause squats or pause deads? Um, when should they be used? Should you tempo on the way down, but not on the way up or how often or, or 
pauses at the bottom. Does that matter? Cause you can still come out of the hole quick. Have you seen much studies on that? Or if not based off of what you have seen, do you have anything that you you've thought about with those? Uh, I'll, I'll kick it. I'll kick it off here. Um, it. I, Zach, you can hop in here if I'm missing anything, but I'm not aware of any direct studies examining tempo versus non-tempo training. Um, in the context that we would discuss it for powerlifting. Um, but I could be missing something. So Zach. Define that. That's the important part. Yeah. D define yeah. the tempo? No, no, no. You, well, I was talking to Josh. I was talking oh, okay. like, what, what, what exactly do you mean there? Go for it, man. Do okay. you have, okay. do you have well, a study No, yeah. I, was, I mean, all I was going to say is that I, in general for strength, I would say having a slow concentric portion is probably not ideal is, is usually, you know, that's, that's exactly like the one, one thing to avoid is like, if you have a slow eccentric, totally fine. If you're pausing, totally fine. I would say the only thing that I would probably would have a little bit of hesitance is a slowing the concentric intentionally. Now, to be clear, I'm sure there's a good utility for that. In some case, I'm sure somebody has had a ton of success with that. Um, and for like fixing something technique wise or, or whatever, but that's purely from like a, academic perspective that does seem to be the one thing if you compare somebody moving the bar as fast as they can to somebody deliberately moving it slower that's like the one thing it's like okay that probably isn't a great idea which makes sense again if go back to the force production standpoint we just mentioned if you're not accelerating and give it load as fast as you can on the concentric portion the force production is less so that seems yep. to kind of make sense with our with our model but um yeah intent as far as tempo work i prescribe it all the time pause work prescribe it all the time mm. um and, and really the the one thing that we just always cue alongside that is to move the concentric portion as fast as you can while staying under control. Um, cause that's going to maximize the force at a, at a given load. Um, there, yeah, there is a, there is a study directly examining, um, a temp, a tempo on the concentric. If I recall correctly, one group purposefully moved, um, the concentric about half as fast as they could maximally. And the other group moved the concentric maximally. And the, the group that moved the concentric, right, the upward portion maximally saw about double the strength gain. So pretty basic study there to illustrate the, the point that generally speaking, now, of course, there's caveats. Maybe you're managing an injury, um, so you might really want to limit load, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, concentrics on or tempos on the concentric, we wouldn't necessarily advise. And again, we can think of that through the force production lens of we want to move this, this relative load as fast as we can to maximize our force production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes sense that like, obviously even like on the bench, the squat, when you're loading, you know, you're loading the latch, you're bringing the bench down, the bar down to your chest or the squat same, you're kind of loading. But when you're coming up it, if you even just do it yourself, you could feel like, Holy smokes. Is it low going slower while you're descending feels okay. Cause the muscles are mm -hmm. being loaded. But when you come up, if you're like, I'm going to purposely slow down, the mm -hmm. amount that it takes out of you, it's so drastic. It just uh, sucks. It's not fun. <laughs> it's, um, you could see Nobody how, wants to train that way. <laughs> how could you? I don't even know how you'd survive a block like that. Like how many of those reps could you do? Qual talking about quality reps. I mean, you got one. You better be careful. It better be super. <laughs> I mean, that's, we're talking how much uh, weight could it possibly be doing that? Um, yeah. And in terms of like, programming once you get into pause work for programming i guess it would be along the same lines of same principles 
um, as long as when you're coming back up, as long as that velocity, obviously you're purposely changing the velocity um, in one way, but when you're coming out of the hole in the squat or uh, it's, it's coming off of the, uh, your chest and the bench, as long as that velocity isn't greatly changing, you're good and use the same measurements if you're going to be adding pauses. Is that right? Yeah, that actually actually brings me to a note that I wrote down, not to take us down a too big of a tangent, but let's do it. Um, but I think another reason that we like top sets is, is for this example. So for like a pause squat, for example, it's probably not super likely that you have a really recent one RM to do like a percentage based training for a, for a pause squat. So using some type of like RPE based top set or something like that is going to allow you to to use an estimated one RM for that specific day on that specific exercise that you can use to assign a load. And the reason I bring up the load and why I think that's important is because this is often something Josh and I run into is that people are really, really bad at rating their RPEs, especially with submaximal work. And the reason that's really, really important is because if you say, man, these data driven strength guys are telling me to train easy. I'm doing my sets of five at a five RPE because that's what they said, even though maybe that's not exactly how we say it, but let's just, let's say that's how they interpret it. They're doing sets of five at a five RP. In reality, they probably have like 10 reps, 10 reps in reserve, or maybe even more than that, because mm -hmm. it's so hard to gauge that. And people are often like, well, how can you advocate for low RPEs if it's so hard to gauge? Is like, first and foremost, we would definitely not recommend doing this through the RPE based route, because it's just, it's nearly impossible to know that you're at a solid loading range, kind of like Rory was saying, we're recommending kind of sensible training weights. So that's not to say there's never a case to be made for, you know, 40 to 60% of one RM for some specific outcomes. But in general, when we're training for powerlifting, we want to be in that 70 to 85% of one RM range. And so to kind of bring us back to those top sets or, or for pause squats, for example, I think having one of those higher effort sets that makes you very, very confident, you kind of know what that theoretical one RM is for that exercise on that day is going to make sure that you prescribe weights that are going to be relevant to the, to the actual adaptations that we're seeking so that, you know, when I'm prescribing 80% of one RM, that's not going to result in me doing sets of two that I have 20 reps in reserve on because yeah. man, that's what they said to do. Like that's, that, that's a, it's a really um, easy way yeah. to screw, screw it up is if you just purely do things based on RP and you're like doing highish rep sets at low RPEs, you can very easily find yourself training with sub 60% of one RM if you're, if you're not careful. So um, that was just yeah. some kind of a tangent. I wanted to go down with that example. We that's good. And, and, and to, to, you know, kind of bring this to practice, we don't put on our clients spreadsheets, like sets of four at RP two. We basically, nobody can accurately gauge that. Um, so generally speaking in the, in the research, we see that individuals become more accurate with their RPE ratings at a heavier loads and B when they're closer to failure. So that's why we can pretty accurately estimate, okay, that single was at an RP eight, but it's really hard to say, um, you know, that set of four was that, was it at RPE one or was it at RP six? It's, it's kind of hard to differentiate between the two. And again, based on the research, um, you know, people might have a lot more reps in the tank than they actually think they do. So that's why, you know, in practice, we, we largely use percentages for this to ensure we're not accidentally using 55, 60% of our one rep max when we're really shooting for like 75 plus. Um, so just generally speaking, again, we're not asking people to necessarily rate, oh, was this RP1 or RP3? Um, that's not really the point. And another, another thing I would add, 
is I think a lot of people underestimate how hard a true RPE four or five set is. Um, like you were talking about in your example of, of doing a bunch of sets of four. Now, of course, they're not as hard as, as you doing that set for a set of eight. But again, a, a, a true five reps in reserve is, is, is a tough set. And also to kind of piggyback off of that, a lot of people, we think when they're in the gym doing their volume work, sets of six and they're logging it at RP7, RP8, we're, we're inclined to believe that those sets are probably more like RP345. So a lot of people are actually probably doing what we're saying, which is kind of, uh, w- w- which is kind of interesting to think about. But generally speaking, especially with volume work, people tend to underestimate how much they actually have in the tank. I have a couple of questions. I'm going to let Arian and Rory ask a couple of questions too, because I don't want to dominate this. I know they, they probably have some questions too, but um, yeah, it's funny if uh, you're with your buddies lift and you're like, come on, homie, that was an RP one. That was RP three. Who are you kidding? <laughs> if we're, exactly. if we're judging like that, like that was RP three all day, what were you prescribed? Cause I thought it was a two. And that looked like a data driven strength set rp2 look, is and, and that looked like a the games are made me. that's right people are in the comments be like you said rp2 but it looked like rp3 to me it is very difficult right like who's kidding who the distinguishing between rp2 and rp3 so i get your when you're like that's difficult to prescribe rp sometimes you got to get percentages etc yeah. um some of the things that you had said uh so i don't know if i interpret this right so let me ask so w- would you do like a top set like a heavier top set single, if it's paused, whatever, to get a gauge of where you're at that day. And then would you base a percentage off that particular weight? Because I know like, I know for myself, depending on where I'm at in a block, if I'm getting beaten up from it, um, my one rep max on any given day could be completely different. Like if I used what I used last competition, it could be way different depending where I'm at in a block. So am I interpreting right that you would say, hop in there, go for a single-ish around eight-ish and use a percentage off of that, basically? Yeah, pretty much the way we like to frame it is on most training days for most exercises, at least the main compound lifts, you're probably going to have some set that's above 85%. Now that can come in a ton of different shapes and sizes. That can range from a set of five at RP7, or that can be a single at RP9, depending on the exercise, depending on the person. Uh, But in general, yeah, we use that set to generate what we call an estimated 1RM, which is popularized by Mike Tushier and RTS. They do that a ton. Um, And we usually use the RTS percentage chart, which is really convenient if people haven't used it before basically you just take the the reps and the rpe that you did and again like josh said we're pretty confident that it's accurate in those instances because the load is heavy enough and the rp is high enough those that's really the one circumstance that we want to kind of push the rpes when we're looking to uh, maximize strength in the short to moderate term so if i do like you said a single at an eight rpe that's going to be roughly 92 percent of one rm not going to be the same for every person, but we find as long as you are consistently using the same percentages for the relationship between reps and RP, it works fine. Um, and you can just kind of alter your prescriptions for there. If something's too much, not enough, that kind of thing. But roughly speaking, a single out of an eight RPE is going to be 92 and percent. You divide the load that you just used by 92 and percent. Let's say my estimated one RM is going to be 200 kilos. And then from there, now I kind of have a one RM for the day. I can prescribe percentage-based loading off of um, to use based on my readiness, how I'm feeling that day, moving slow, how to didn't sleep well. That'll all get adjusted based on your performance on that top set. So it's all relative to the to kind of the readiness for that day. And that's kind of the way 
It's a reason we like to use those top sets. One, because we know that they're high in force production, which kind of fits our model in terms of you know, uh, in increasing strength, but two, from a logistical perspective, it makes sure that our loading on these lower RP back offsets is going to be sufficient to make sure it's relevant for strength. Perfect. And that, um, well, you were saying that an eight is usually roughly a 92%. Is that Mike T has one of those charts that kind of says, look at, this is what I've seen. Is that right? Yeah, it's okay, it's perfect. literally you Google RTS uh, percentage of 1RM chart should pop right up. It's pretty. I think a ton of people use it. I don't know if Mike gets enough credit for that. It's another great resource that he's that he's had along with Bless him. in general. He's, he's the man. Bless him, man. He's he gives so much, huh? And um, is that different for women? Because sometimes women they could go all day, all night with some of these reps, like uh, closer to the top of singles. I think we all level off, but it's, it's a little different for women as they go. It's a good, it's a good question. So this is, this is another piece of individualization that we, we kind of like to, to do. So um, like you said, particularly, this is the case with kind of volume work, right? Yes. And so what we'll often do, you know, you, you come to me as a client, it's our first block together. Often what I'll have you do is day one on squat. It says work up to a single at eight RP. And then after that, you're going to take 80% of that SMA one RM and you're going to do an AMRAP until RP eight. And so that RP is high enough that we're pretty sure as long as this person is familiar with RP, of course, um, that that's going to be pretty accurate. And so I can see, do you get what I expect, which is going to be somewhere around five to seven reps is probably average. Or are you the type of person, like I mentioned, my client that's getting 10, 12 reps every time in which that is something I definitely have to be mentally aware of when I'm prescribing these things for top sets. It doesn't matter as much, right? Because you're using RPE and that the percentage is essentially irrelevant. You're going to get that combination for that person regardless. But when I'm using a percentage of that SME one RM, I need to know, are you a person that outperforms the averages in terms of reps performed underperforms? I think another story I've told is I had a collegiate swimmer client that, um, <laughs> he messaged me one after a training session. He's like, dude, I, I, that squat session was rough, man. I, I, I just feel like that's not really what we should be doing right now. I was like, what, what, what do you mean? And he's like, he had, he had AMRAPs at, I believe it was somewhere between 70 and 75%, but I think it was 75%. And dude was popping off like 22 reps. And, 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 and uh, it, was, it was still submax RPEs. So I, I, felt, I felt so bad. But that, that, was the, that was the immediate case where I was like, okay, I need to start doing this with every yeah. person I get the first block just to make sure that because we like to do things this way and it's generally the way we prescribe training that I need to make sure I understand the, the uh, holes to this system and, and the, the areas that has some weaknesses. And that's definitely one of them is there's, is variability in reps performed at a given percentage. So we have to have a way to account for that. And that's generally how we do it is by having those AMRAPs somewhere in training for people. That first off, holy shit. It'd be like, my man, when you're done, you're swimming. I'm signing up for CrossFit because I think we're going to make a lot more money. I mean, you make some good dough. I think I got myself a winner here. Um, Rory area. And I know I've been somewhat dominating the questions here. I don't, I know you guys probably have a couple. Um, you guys want to jump in with something? I do have more though. <laughs> so sure, sure. I can j jump in for a little bit. What you're, what you're explaining there is the testing. I, I believe is uh, Mike T did the same thing for one of his uh, project momentums. And he took like the underperformers and put them in a high rep group and the overperformers in a low rep group to see if yep. they would uh, improve at what they're not good at. But um, just the, the overall idea of everything you guys were talking about, like, like Rory said, one of the first things that I thought thought about was Borshiko and Ashiko blocks. The other thing I thought about was uh, Prolepin's chart. 
because that's like used from weightlifting data. And sometimes I use it for powerlifters as like an introductory week. Cause I know it's easy, mm-hmm. but you know, I always get the complaints like, Oh, the training's too easy and everything like that. And I like all the stuff you guys are putting out now. Cause I can say like, see, everyone else is doing all this easy stuff too. It's not just what, what I give out to people. Um, but you answered a few of my questions already that I thought like people would have, which is like, you know, what about the top set? What about the rest times when you're doing that many sets and how to gauge that low of an RP. Um, but going a little bit deeper into like, you know, people like to attack maybe this method or just like, you know, things based on research in general is what are your thoughts on? Like a lot of studies are done on like, you know, newer lifters that maybe only squat and delve like one and a half times their body weight and they may get strong off of anything. Zach, I know you have good ramblings on this. We were talking <laughs> yeah. about this the other day. Yep. So this is a multifaceted question. I think the first thing to acknowledge is that it's definitely a limitation is that's the first thing to be very upfront about and realize that this is not the population that we're attempting to generalize these findings to. And that's just something we need to be aware of. That's the, that's the very first thing. So everything we do regarding research, regarding translation, um, we need to have that, you know, that in the back of our minds. And so translating this with a ton of caution, I think that's the, the very first thing, but Digging a little bit deeper, I do think there's a, a, a few things that we, that we can think about, right? Um, the first, first portion of it is these people are of a training status that allows us to see divergent outcomes in the amount that, of research that is logistically in the timeframe, which is typically going to be a semester of an academic calendar. If I have Bryce Lewis and uh, Ashton Rouska come into a study, there is literally nothing I'm going to be able to tease out in an eight week period, literally nothing. So that, that is something that I think is, is often, um, you know, not given enough credence. Now, of course, people that are absolutely new to training, anything works and they're probably going to get outrageous results. So there's definitely a sweet spot there. We don't want people that are never squatting before coming in and being our trained subjects, quote unquote, but there is, you know, the kind of that middle Goldilocks zone of, of trained population that probably is still more trained than what we average than we get on average. I'm not going to dispute that, but I do think that there, there's a little bit more credence to be paid to that population because it allows us to see divergent outcomes when we compare uh, different things. Um, Josh, honestly, I'm going to have to think about it a little bit more because I'm losing my second one. But do you have Rory, anything to add on that while I'm losing sec. my second one? Rory, is your dog – is that your dog? That might be mine. Oh, can you, can you shoot a dog? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you got anything to add to that? No, I think, I think Zach outlined it really well is that, of course, if we're looking to apply this to rather high-level power lifters – that the the studied populations were we're we're just never going to get that you know how many of your your high level clients are going to be willing to go over to the local university laboratory and and go volunteer for a study for 12 weeks probably not many of them so there's that limitation um and i think i think it just ha- we we have to keep it we have to be upfront that it is indeed a limitation and also see if it plays out in practice so uh, Another one of our, uh, our coaches here at Data Driven Strength, his name's Jake, I, I, I kind of stole this term from him. He says, be evidence-based, but not science only. So, okay, what does that mean to be evidence-based? Yes, of course we look at the research, but we also look to conceptualize that research, integrate it into practice and see if things are aligning. Now, if we see that they're not aligning, the evidence-based thing to do would be to revise our position on it and, and, you know, try and figure out the best way to apply it. It's not, it's evidence-based, but not science only. And being evidence-based is more than just looking at studies in isolation. So, you know, there's other ways we can apply this idea. 
when we do get the opportunity to study rather elite powerlifters or elite bodybuilders, do we see totally different trends in the research? So again, in the, maybe the, the proximity to failure for strength literature, maybe we don't have that opportunity, but in similar areas of literature where we're examining similar outcomes, do we see totally divergent responses? Do we see that beginners need maybe 10 sets per week on average, but um, you know, really advanced guys need 50 sets per week on average. We don't really have, you know, we don't really see that divergent of outcomes. Like the way that I think about it is everybody's physiology is kind of the same. And at the end of the day, from the research, we're looking to get the concepts and again, integrate those concepts into practice. Um, and again, the, the last thing I'm going to add here is that people will say, oh, you know, they can only squat 1.5 times their body weight or, or 1.25 times their body weight. Anything's going to work for them. While that's true, we also, we also see differences between groups, right? Yeah, so like, yeah. yes, it works, but like, which one worked better? Like that's, that's what we're exactly trying to see. what I was going to say. I, I was yeah. going to say, yeah, everything's going to work, but one's going to work better. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's, and that's the goal. And, and again, like if you have super high level guys where you're not even going to be able to, to detect a change in 12, in 12 weeks, cause they're so dang strong already, you're, you're not going to get anywhere anyway. So Again, I want to be very upfront that it is a limitation of research in general, but that's kind of the conceptual lens I, I think of it through um, and, and totally open to any critiques that any of you guys have. I'm just going to put a bow on that because Josh, you literally hit on all the things as I was thinking about the other things on my list. First and foremost, the anecdote needs to align. And I think we just talked about this in this conversation multiple times about Boris Shako and literally been doing this for so long. So in this context specifically, I'm pretty confident, not only based on our own coaching success, which is obviously going to be subjective and, and everybody's going to have their own experience, but on our coaching success, we seem to have success with it. But there's also, you know, other coaches that had very similar methods. And you know, go back to Louis Simmons, dynamic effort is similar, not quite along the same lines, especially um, for the raw powerlifter, but similar. And then obviously Shaco, I think is the big one. And tons of people have had success with this programs. So the anecdotes align. Um, and then the other thing, uh, that I was going to touch on is another big critique of this research in general is that it's done in Smith machines. And while I agree again, that is a limitation. I will totally have that up front. It is not exactly the population we want. There are advantages to a Smith machine, believe it or not. The big, the big in a research study. Easy in, in, in the, in the research, well, even in the training study, you know, quad hypertrophy. But, um, oh, oh, overrated, oh, underrated, Ryan. Okay, here we go. But, there, there's but, our soundbite. That's, yeah. that's the soundbite I'm using in the Instagram stories. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, but in the research, I, I think like especially because the limitation is that we have these people that aren't as trained, what would make more sense to have a exercise that has a huge amount of technical variability or something yeah. that's a little bit more constrained so we can look at the muscular adaptations in more of a, you know, controlled environment. So I, again, it's not totally like exactly generalizable to the population we care about, but I think it's also a little bit short-sighted to not acknowledge that there are some inherent benefits to having a more controlled environment in research. And then finally, the thing I was just going to wrap it up with is that it's the best we have. And so science in general has, advantages to it. It's in, it's in a more controlled environment where we can eliminate some of the variability from all the other factors that go into training outcomes. And even though it's not perfect, 
I do think it can help us kind of point us in the direction of one thing. And as Josh said, it's conceptual. It gives us a starting point and then good coaches are going to individualize from there anyway. It doesn't matter if the research says one thing, if something is clearly not working in front of their eyes, you're going to change it and go with what does. But all the research does, is it gives us a conceptual starting point to get us in the range that's going to be 90% effective for most people. And then from there, good coaches are going to use their systems and their experience to get them to the best place that for that specific athlete. You are right that, um, I mean, all jokes aside, in terms of the Smith machine, like it'll be the most consistent bar path. Every single person yep. you throw in there, it doesn't yep. matter if you've been lifting five years. Depth, depth is going to be the same. It, it, it's uh, everything. Just, it just takes so many, like you might not say, I'm going to keep you on the, on the Smith machine from here on out. But if I want to take away all variables from, if you've been lifting five years, if you've been lifting five days, your bar, path, you just get in there, go up and down. Everyone can use the Smith machine. It just, all I want to do is, focus on how much weight you're lifting and take my notes, you know, yep. one more thing. Cause I just thought about it. Also, a lot of those studies are velocity based and we know from the literature that velocity is a lot more useful when the bar path is constrained and technical variability doesn't affect the speed of the rep. And so that's another variable because if we had to rely on these studies with less trained people using RPE, that's going to suck in general, because they're, they're untrained and their, you know, their ability to rate RP is going to be poor. So if we put them in a Smith machine, now we can use velocity to gauge proximity to failure. And in that setting, it seems to be a little bit more accurate than if we allow for horizontal translations in the barbell with, uh, you know, a, a free squat or a competition squat, but that, that just, I'm rambling fellas, at this point. <laughs> fellas, listen, my last, my next four weeks are on the fucking squat or in the Smith machine. That's it. Okay. <laughs> can I say something? There it is. I don't okay, care how many pounds I lose. There it is. I, I was going to add in there for, for some studies for like, you know, pre and post test, don't they also do like, you know, an isometric knee extension, which is like, you know, the, the most basic way to see like the force production of the quads. Yep. Yep. Um, a lot of studies will like, it's, it's actually interesting. This is something we've talked about on our podcast. Um, and, and I think Zach's a little bit more familiar with this concept than I am, but what you'll see is, is, you know, you'll have a, a lower rep group in a higher rep group and um, they'll see equal hypertrophy outcomes, but the lower rep group will typically get stronger when you test them on the exercise they train. So if we're doing barbell back squats, they get stronger at the barbell back squats, but you put them on something like an isometric knee extension or an isometric leg press, something like that. We see similar outcomes in terms of force production in, in that sense. So, you know, that that's another way that we can, we can determine, um, you know, kind of how much, how much do we increase their force capacity? But I would just add the caveat that we care about one rep max strength. So that's what we should probably focus on, but it is an interesting caveat nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, another question I had about the limitations of the research studies and then I'll pass off to Rory before I get in my question though, Rory and I have both been uh, guinea pigs of studies. So how dare you say we're not elite, <laughs> was, elite lifters. I was going to say, I know, I know at least one of them. I'll let these guys find out who, which one it is. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I've actually been part of studies both at Florida State and FAU, and it's not fun, you know, getting your blood drawn three times a week and then having to go train or at like FAU, like trying to do a back squat, but you're doing it on a force plate with a bunch of like um, electrodes on your quads and stuff like that. And then trying to max out your squat. So sometimes it is easier. That, just that to setup do was crazy, dude. Okay. Hang be... on a sec. Uh, tell me that. Uh, that's interesting. I had no idea this is how in depth that you're on a force plate with sensors on your quads like this is okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this experience. I, I don't know if you guys know about that, that research study, if the details you want to go over the, this. Yeah. The more I details. mean, I, I was not, I was not a part of it to be clear, but um, it was, that was the, the original 
um, one of the original RP studies, I believe that they did in the FAU muscle lab. Um, they did a ton, a ton of measurements um, and they have a ton of data from the force plates, from the EMG. I think a lot of that is not published, unfortunately. So it sounds like oh, wow. he went through some, through some struggle um, to, to uh, go through the uncomfortable electrodes and force plates and balance and all that good stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was the, one of the original uh, RP studies that Dr. Zordos has kind of been uh, made his career um, from obviously from Mike Tushier, who is the one that originally pioneered it in the field. And then Dr. Zordos kind of brought it to the scientific literature, but I believe that's what that study was, but has a ton of other um, outcomes that they took. And I believe the data is somewhere, but I just don't think it's been published quite yet. Just, just to add some context to the listener, when you get the chance to have a subject come into your laboratory and commit to an eight to 12 week study, you want to get as much data as you can, <laughs> even if you're not going to analyze it and publish it right away. You want to take that opportunity and, and, and pile up any data you can, because it's, you know, logistically there, there's a lot of man hours that go into that. And it's a lot of time that the individuals are, um, you probably help somebody graduate for. more most informally. Yeah. So <laughs> just, just, just going real quick. Real quick, Ryan, through my my day of what it took was like, you know, driving an hour, like 60 miles north to get to the campus. And then, you know, you have to go there and max out. But on the way as you're doing your singles, you have to also give them your RPE rating. And yeah, they have the EMG electrodes on your on your legs, plus like videos from each side and on like a wooden force plate inside of a Lico rack. So it's like a little bit weird trying to set up and unrack without going off of the edge of like the platform and then doing your squat racking it turning around looking at the, the the sheet and being okay it's rpe this and like the whole thing there for that study the main thing they're trying to look at was can beginners uh rate the rp as well as the advanced lifters so it, sometimes it is easier to just like you know yeah throw someone on a smith machine or something like that it's like the <laughs> third or fourth time i met dr helms i was i was doing one of these studies and i'm and it was in a motion capture lab and so they kept quite cold so it was like 14 degrees Celsius. What's that in, in Fahrenheit? Like, Dude, like relatively cool, right? Did they do and, that on and you're purpose? standing there in just underwear and squat shoes, right? Um, with like covered in mocap, those little like retro reflective mocap dots covered in electrodes. You're squatting. We didn't have a wooden force plate. We had one that was on a treadmill. And so of course the surface of treadmills move. And so you have to, you know, walk out your squat a meter and a half from the rack into the middle of this force plate, um, put your feet on it. Like you're trying to brace with your feet. And of course, then the floor is moving underneath you. Um, you're like mostly naked for like two hours in this lab. That's like quite cold. Um, and then you have to max out your squat. Um, and then you need to come back like a week later and do that all again. Um, it's like not a super pleasant experience. Eh? So, so for 14 Celsius is about 57 degrees Fahrenheit. But I think maybe they heard Rory's coming. They're like, okay, turn down the AC and tell me it's to come pay a list. That's right. <laughs> this is like skinny 85 kilo Rory. Like, like Rory now could eat that guy for breakfast. Um, but. <laughs> but if I if I could bring it down to my bring it back to my second question about limitations, is as you also mentioned, is the length of studies. Do you think there's a possibility that when you have a shorter term study, that there's a single factor that maybe is an outlier and has a, a group get stronger it could be that, you know, their force production, it could be, they have more time to execute their setup and their technique, but more over the longer term, other factors would dictate and they would be stronger off a different method. I'm 100%. Very, I'm very, very glad you asked this question. Very glad you asked this question. So like Zach said, when you're conducting a study, typically at a university, you know, the, the, the students are, going to be gone for summer break or for, for winter break. So, you know, you can't, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get them for more than 12 to 16 weeks max. So like you said, we're, we're limited to short duration studies. So that's why we always add the caveat that we are confident that 
this this kind of methodology or this concept we're talking about applies in the short to moderate term. But we can kind of piece together some other areas of research that kind of lead us to our overall periodization model for how we think we should we, we should go about this, you know, average RPE of the back offsets in like a calendar year or within a training macro cycle. So basically what we can say is, okay, how do we get as strong as possible in the long term? Based on our interpretation of the research, we think that's as getting as jacked as possible in the muscles that are contributing to the squat bench and the deadlift. We're, we're quite confident in saying that. So, okay, if we're far out from competition, we should be checking our boxes and making sure we are executing training to get as, as jacked as possible. And although we're confident that we can still get a pretty dang good hypertrophy stimulus from these lower RP sets, when you are doing more sets to make up for it, we're not certain that's the case just because of kind of a lack of research in the topic or just, just a lack of clarity in the, in, in the research. Again, we're not necessarily, you know, we're not necessarily saying like, oh, only the last reps of a set to failure are the ones that count. But just generally speaking, we think it's a safer bet to take sets closer to failure if the goal is maximizing hypertrophy. So, okay, we, we take this, this one concept. Okay, we think that generally lower average RP back offsets is, is the way to go in the short to moderate term. But in the long term, we want to get as jacked as possible. And we think it's probably our best bet to take sets closer to failure. That's why when we're farther out from competition or a test, we encourage individuals to increase their average RPE. So that leads us to our periodization model of kind of, we, we see this decrease in average RPE of the back offsets uh, throughout the training cycle. So to answer your question, I don't know exactly the best way to periodize things, but that's you know, with the limitation of study length, that's how we kind of piece together different areas of the research and come to that conclusion. Gotcha. Yeah. I can only speak incidentally myself. I'll, I'll let you, did you want to jump in there, Zach? Okay. Uh, oh, that was a thumbs up. Gotcha. Um, I, I, I can only speak incidentally for myself when I had, it was going to be the exact same amount of reps regardless, like I said earlier. And, um, but I just chopped them in half. So I did more sets, less reps per set. And I was fucking beat up the next day. Like mm -hmm. I could like I was toasty muscular wise, not like in all the wrong places and all the right places. Like I had hit some, uh, hypertrophy for sure. So it, I, th I you know, it's antidotal, but you, you're, it's the same rep ranges. Um, and the muscles don't care. So they, they feel beat up the next day. I felt myself anyways. Um, Aaron, you got more questions or Rory, did you want to jump in with a couple of questions as well? I've got a couple of questions. Um, I'll start with the start with what I think is probably the easy one. Um, one of the things that we've sort of touched on a little bit and, and that it seems to be like relatively well supported in literature is that beginners are like quite bad at rating RPEs. Um, and so a lot of what you've talked about is like, you know, first block, you get this person in, you get them to work, work up to a single at seven, eight, nine RPE. And then we sort of do some sort of rep test. We say like 80% go to RPE eight, make sure that you can't do only three reps or make sure that you can't do like 45 reps at that percentage. Um, so that we get sort of a feeling for how much volume we can, we can push on you at a, at a given percentage and it be sensible. Um, and that probably falls apart if you have someone who just has no idea what RPE is or, or can't, can't conceptualize RPE at all. So how would, you, how would you change these recommendations or how would you program differently for somebody who is new to powerlifting or, or new to lift, lifting in a structured way in general and can't gauge their RPE? 
I mean, first and foremost, it's a good question. And it's, it's one probably that we don't devote enough attention to um, all the time um, in terms of translating practical, you know, feedback on this stuff. Cause a lot of the stuff that we talk about does rely on RP, but I think you can um, get yourself to a good spot. Obviously the first, the first thing to say is, although somebody's training may not be um, prescriptive in RP right away, I would probably have them start rating it immediately just to, uh, it, it's a skill, just like anything else. The more you practice it, you're going to get better at it. So from the first session they're with me, I would describe them to them what it is and get them to understand that conceptually and then have them start rating it. It's going to be terrible for the first two or three weeks. As we get over time, um, you will get better at it. Um, from a programming standpoint, I think this is where programming exact loads is probably a little bit more sensible, especially if you're working with a coach. Where are they now? Where do I want to take them? And, and obviously I can guide them along the way with using, uh, you know, prescribed loads along the way. And this is where Johnny's video comes in handy because I think the prescribed load with RPE caps is something that makes a ton of sense because I think that's something you can conceptualize very, very, very quickly is okay. 200 pounds felt like X last week. I'm warming up for 205 this week and man, it does not feel the same. Maybe that's that. Maybe that's when we, you know, instruct the lifter on what to do if they're if they're feeling considerably worse on a day. Maybe we subtract twenty pounds from the from the uh, prescribed load or something like that. And 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 essentially all they're doing is having some sort of system that is descriptively rating their RP along the way. They're getting more familiar with that skill to the point where I'm I'm okay with them using RP prescriptively now to actually write training for them, work up to a single at RP X Y Z, just like we talked about. The second thing I'll say is I am a very, very big advocate of especially people that are just kind of starting to train, starting to get into powerlifting, having a bro phase where you take some stuff to failure. Like I do think that like we, we talk about low RP, we talk about, um, you know, fatigue management, all this stuff. That's very, very important, especially when you're trying to optimize and maximize things. But I, I have a very hard time believing it's going to be consequential if you do things quote unquote wrong, which it, it, you know, I'm not saying to go and do 45 sets to failure, but I'm just saying, go in, have some fun with some buddies, push yourself, take some sets pretty close or all the way to failure. So you are very, very familiar with what that feels like. And obviously working with a coach, there's a better way to do that than others. When I did, when I was 16, going and literally doing every single chest exercise I can possibly imagine <laughs> and completely yeah. obliterating myself because, yeah. you know, more is better, bro. That <laughs> is probably not the ideal approach. And so if you have a coach, you know, maybe I'm prescribing load for the first two of your sets. You have a heavier set, slightly decreased set, and then maybe like a less set than that. And I say, take it all the way to the house. Make sure you have a spotter or doing on an exercise that is safe. That is going to be the best way because in the research, what we find is when people anchor their RPE or you are actually defining to them a failure of a repetition is what RPE 10 means, not some conception of what you think is hard. The RP ratings are much more accurate. So that is essentially, if you can build that into someone's training as a beginner, so maybe the first block is obviously establishing behavior change, proper habits, making sure they consistently show up at the gym. Then we start to get to have a little bit of a linear progression or something like that, building into a block that they can tolerate a little bit higher RPEs. And then we give them the chance to push some things pretty close or all the way to failure to anchor those RPEs. And now we've given them all the skills to kind of use for the rest of their training career to benefit from some of this lower RP stuff and maybe be working up to some top sets that are arguing auto-regulated in that way. So that, that would be my answer. Josh, I don't know if you have anything to add, but that's kind of my approach and how I would, uh, you know, train a beginner. Yeah. Just, just one super quick thing to add is that, you know, we, we kind of get the rap as like the, the lower RP guys, which, you know, is, is fair because we're, we're 
we are kind of advocating for lower average RPs. But again, with the caveat that we've talked about, these sessions are not easy. They're often harder. The other thing I'd say is, okay, on one hand, we have that, but we also often talk about RPE accuracy and how a lot of people are probably undershooting their RPEs, especially on like accessory work and especially with higher rep sets. So when I, you know, when, when we're onboarding a client or working together for the first couple of months, we're often giving them an earful that dude, that leg press set was not a true two reps in reserve. That was not a true RP eight. Next week, I want you to take this to the house. I want you to take this literally until you cannot complete another repetition. They get another seven reps and then that anchors them. And then again, go back, going back to what I was saying before, then a true RP five set is a lot harder than it was before. Um, so just a little context there that we're often giving people an earful to actually take this stuff to higher P's at times. Just to paint that even more, like think about, okay, if you've ever done a set to failure on a leg press or a high rep squat set to failure or something like that, just think about how hard that is. That is a religious experience. As Mike Isertel always likes to say, you are seeing ghosts in your head that, that you're sitting on the floor for five to 10, maybe even more minutes afterwards. You're trying to drink your Gatorade, man. It doesn't make the feeling feel any better. You're going to the bathroom still doesn't help. That's 10. Many people in their program say that they're completing multiple volume sets of RP8. I have such a hard time believing that if that's what 10 is, it's two reps away from that. There's no way. Like that, that, You're that right. just like, like a conceptually practical way to think about that is that's only two reps from that experience. And you're able to complete those sets across without a slight drop in bar speed, man, I'm skeptical of that. So that like, that's just the way I think about it. Um, as, as, as something that's just, um, always on my mind, like Josh said, we're painted as a low effort, easy training guys, but man, that's the, that's the foundation is like, when we start training with somebody, you're probably going to start with some higher volume, closer to failure work. And I'm going to let you know if your sets aren't close enough to failure, because that sets everything else in terms of how we like to do things to make sure those loads are heavy enough to train how we think is kind of the best way to. RPE 10, you thought you heard the voice of God, or you saw the face of God. RPE 8, you heard your grandma's voice who died two years ago. That's, that's, that's a good gauge right there. Rory, you got uh, more questions, sir? I was just going to say, I, I, I agree with you that people undershoot the RP on things they don't like to do, like high reps and accessory work. But if it's yeah. by one to eight, damn, they're overshooting that thing. That's, yeah. a, that's a really good heuristic is that we often have to hold people back on their top sets, but push them harder on their volume work. That's, that's generally speaking what we see. Nobody's taking Bulgarian split squats to like a true RP eight or nine for, for sets across, right? The like, trick there, the trick there no, is just not to do, do those. Yeah, you just don't do single <laughs> leg work. Yeah. That's, that's the be best fix there. I, I, I've got a couple more questions. Um, so we touched on it a little bit, but so we we talked about before with the uh, sort of primary and secondary movements, you know, your, your squats, your high bar squats and so on and so forth. You take, take a set or maybe a small number of sets to a heavy and relatively high RPE you know, single, single at eight, triple at eight, uh, set of five at, at seven, you know, those sorts of things over 85% and then do some volume drop work at a relatively low RPE. How do you think about accessories in that paradigm? Do you do, you do something similar? Like, would you have someone work up to a uh, belt squat set of, uh, you know, single or set of five at eight and then do some, some back offs? Like what's the, how does that tie into the rest of the paradigm? Damn. One at eight on belt squat, baby. That would suck. That would uh, suck so much. Like my heavy single on like a Bulgarian split squat. My you guys are going to start having to post these on King of the Lifts. No, the, the oh, Jesus. Oh, wow. That's powerlifting, baby. This is my easy yeah. basket one, one at eight. Yeah, yeah will you repost me? Yeah, exactly. You got an amazing Bulgarian split squat. Um, 
Zach, you want to you want to take yeah, a shot? At okay. That? Um, Rory, honestly, man, this is the Very thing. Good I, question. I, yeah, it's an excellent question. Fantastic. This is the thing I'm I'm thinking probably the most deeply about at the moment, um, purely from a conceptual basis. What we like to do and have done in the past a ton is, again, this is why the hypertrophy phase is so important, right? We want to have a very, very accurate gauge of the loads that they're using so that when they transfer over to this lower fatigue phase where we're kind of cutting the average RP down a little bit, we want to make sure those loads are heavy enough, like Josh said, that they're still pretty effective for hypertrophy. We think they're almost just as good, but we're just not totally sure on that. So I'm just going to say almost all the way there. But the only way we're confident of that is if the loads are 10 RMs or greater. So the way that we know what those loads are for those exercises is we essentially need to have a tester period in the hypertrophy block, which is again, why training those sets to those higher RPEs legit is so important because if you're telling me, yeah, I just did, you know, 30 pounds there for 10 reps at an eight RPE. And in reality, it's seven reps in reserve. I do not know what your 10 RM is. And so when we go to this strength block where I cut these sets in half, potentially, so let's say you're doing three sets of 10 and now I have you do six sets of five with the same load. Dude, that's, that's going to be completely different than what we're talking about now because the load is not heavy enough. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so, so important that people are pushing these in the hypertrophy block for the way we do things. Now, some caveats with that. That's not the most fun on some of those assistance movements to do six sets of five on Bulgarian split squats, belt squats, stiff leg deadlifts, that kind of thing that we often have people do. Um, and, and so we've had a lot of people, we value the subjective preference of our lifters a ton. And we think that enjoying your training is literally going to make your outcomes better. So if you're absolutely hating something, then that's probably not ideal. And there's got to be some ways we can work around that. So some alternative approaches that we've discussed is one that I'm probably shifting more towards too, is using some sort of top set, but it isn't quite the same. Um, on these movements, accessory movements, belt squats, dumbbell bench press, that kind of thing, we think the cost of taking those sets closer to failure is a lot less, which is pretty intuitive. So if we take one set pretty close to failure, more in like the typical hypertrophy range, like a set of, you know, seven to an RP seven or something like that, that's a little bit easier to reach your RPE, then I don't think the downsides of that are huge. And the positive is that we're pretty confident that's going to be within the loading range to make these lower sets effective. So maybe you do a set of seven at a seven RPE, and then you do some triples with the same load to get the rest of the reps in. It establishes the exact same concept. A third option is when we're thinking about conceptually the things that um, we're trying to avoid in this, in this kind of low fatigue strength phase, it's higher repetitions closer to failure. So if we just take our belt squat work that we were doing three sets of 12 or whatever, and we make that three sets of six. So it's, you know, from a hard set perspective, it's, it's pretty similar, but the, the reps are just heavier. Obviously that's going to cut down as, as the amount of interest that fatigue you're going to have. And so the downsides of that are also going to be less. So in the kind of the ranking of those three and how theoretically optimal they are, I would say the first approach is to do like six sets of five with the same load. The second approach is they use kind of that one tester set that's going to be more uh, high RPE, but then you're going to do some kind of, uh, you know, lower rep sets after that with the same load. And then option three is just to make your accessory work heavier because that's going to also minimize um, the amount of interest that fatigue you're having. So that's kind of the three tier approach I would go down. I think I'm falling in the middle a little bit more as of late. Um, and obviously this is going to be exercise dependent. We're not doing this on bicep curls. I, that was the last thing I was going to say is this is going to be more mostly on the work that is dedicated towards the prime movers of the power lifts, quads, chest, 
uh, triceps and the uh, um, posterior chain. So that, that's generally the way we think about it. But Josh, I don't know if you have anything else to add there. Uh, no, that was really good. I just want to add one one point is that we we just kind of propose this periodized model in which generally speaking, we try and keep everything quote unquote low fatigue as a strength test or as a competition approaches. But other people have had really good success doing a more concurrent approach. And just generally speaking, a concurrent approach means you're doing two things at the same time, right? So you, you, you can kind of have like these low fatigue back offsets on the competition lifts or like a pause squat or a tempo bench or something like that. But then you move on to your belt squat work or your dumbbell bench or whatever. And you just keep those higher RP because again, the cost isn't a massive deal. So like, for example, Mike Tushir that we've mentioned a few times, he prefers a more concurrent approach. Um, and there's pluses to that. And there, we think there are pluses to our model. Um, so there's kind of two ways to go about it. And if you're, if you're unsure and you're confused about all this stuff we've just been talking about in terms of periodizing, um, you know, the, the average RP, I'd say the easiest way to go is just, okay, for the main lifts, for my back offsets, I'm going to keep the average RP a little bit lower. And then for the stuff where the, the cost isn't super high, belt squats, RDLs, um, again, chest press, that kind of thing, just make it foolproof and do a higher average RPE. And that's, again, kind of a foolproof way to go about it. Um, so again, if, if, we've, if we've lost you, hopefully that brings you back. I have one last question, um, at least one last question for now. Um, in, a, in a sort of traditional periodization model, we would go some sort of hypertrophy blocks at four to six weeks, uh, high volume, high RPE, long ranges of motion, build lots of mass. Second block, some sort of strength block, sort of probably similar length, four to six weeks, lower volume, uh, higher average intensity, depending on the paradigm, maybe higher average RPE. And then finally a peaking block where the volume tends to drop right off, intensity tends to pick right up. Now, I understand that you maintain some amount of hypertrophy training right through all of that as well. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. Yeah, that's, that's another really good question. Um, so I think the, the most important part of this to me is like asking ourselves, why did the kind of traditional paradigm arise in the first place. And I think that's because if we, you know, narrow in this average RP that we've been talking about, if I'm doing uh, the traditional periodization program where the load on the bar is increasing as I get closer to competition and the average RP is climbing as I get closer to competition. So my training goes from, you know, three sets of eight at like a six RP that are pretty sub max to five sets of three at a nine RP when I'm, you know, three weeks out or something like that. That to me is the situation in which a large decrease in training volume and that kind of the traditional super compensation, that's going to be the situation that's going to be most effective. And that's probably why that pattern arose. Now, if we take a step back and kind of do things maybe in more similar to how we're discussing where the average RP is going to kind of decline as we go throughout the training cycle, the reduction in training volume seems to be less necessary is kind of the way we think about it because the fatigue reduction is coming some, from somewhere else. So we often find our lifters, you know, performing essentially their peak training volumes two or three weeks out from their meet just fine because their sets are literally decreasing in average RP as they get closer, still handling heavy loads, getting that practice in elsewhere, but we're not beating them up unnecessarily with sets of two or three at RP nine, because we just don't think the benefit there is, is super, super high. So that's the first thing I would say. 
the second thing I say is like, why are we keeping training volume the same? Like, why, why do we think that's a benefit? Um, first and foremost, like Josh said, from a long-term perspective, we think muscle growth is probably the biggest determinant of your total in the long run. So if we can maximize the, the amount of time that we have high training volumes throughout the year, because that seems to be from the research, the, the variable that's most related to hypertrophy, if we can keep our training volumes pretty high, for most of the year, that's probably going to mean we're going to get a pretty damn good stimulus for muscle growth for as much time as we can. Um, so that's number one. Number two, there does seem to be an effect of training volume in terms of strength as well, albeit to a lesser extent. I think that's partially due to sh just the sheer number of reps you're performing on an exercise. There seems to be, you know, people feeling subjectively practiced. If you take you know, 75% of the lifts that they were performing on the squat away, that's a ton of practice that you just eliminated from that person. Now you can think about that from a fatigue reduction perspective, but there's also the reduction of literally the practice that they had week to week to week that they performed throughout the entire training cycle. You're also removing that. So that's something we would probably want to avoid as well. And then number three, again, if we're thinking long-term planning, if we have a period of time where we're cutting our training volume a ton throughout this entire training cycle the come up after that after the meets over you probably have seen a lot of times lifters really struggle to get back on the wagon and get those work capacities and everything back up in order to handle the training volumes that were allowing them to progress prior to the big taper effect so that's also something we can tend to avoid if we are able to have our lifters maintain uh, a relative amount of training volume for the most part and there is some speculative research to say that um, dropping your training volume a ton um, may increase injury risk a little bit too. And that's the same as increasing your training volume really rapidly. We don't really want to change that super rapidly, probably um, not my area of expertise first and foremost, but that does seem to be a relationship that exists at least conceptually. Um, so those are kind of the main reasons I think that we want to maintain training volume for the most part. And again, we can still bank on the fatigue reduction coming from that drop in average RP that isn't present in kind of the typical periodization model. I'm going to bring up Mike T again, because like we said, he's the man. And, and the, the last reason, um, is, is large that I'm going to outline right now is largely inspired by him. So what they do at reactive training systems is they, they create a, a microcycle, which is a week of training and they just repeat it, um, for the entire block. So maybe they repeat it for five or six weeks, literally the same week of training. Um, we don't necessarily do that. But what that allows you to do is you get a really good idea of what's working for the athlete because there aren't a ton of week to week changes. So again, we, we largely draw from that concept of, okay, in a traditional periodization setup, we see training volume go like this throughout the training cycle. When you look back on the training cycle and you analyze the progress, it's really hard to tell like what worked when you have all that, that, that massive change in training volume. And the reason we focus on training volume to keep it steady, because ours kind of looks like this. It's just, it's just a flat line across until the, the week out from the meet. We usually just drop it for like one week, maybe one and a half weeks. Because we think the most important variable to individualize is the overall training dose. So for me, I can handle about 10 to 13 sets on my bench press per week. Zach, he can handle like 25 plus sets on his bench press per week. That's a, that's a really consistent finding anecdotally and in the research that training volume, overall training dose is what is probably the most important to individualize. And again, if we look back and we're looking back at 16 weeks of training in which we just see a gradual decrease in training volume, it's really hard to tell what the appropriate training volume is for them. And again, to see what worked. So we're kind of 
minimizing the week to week changes of the variable that we think is most important to individualize so that we can have some diagnostic clarity when individualizing training. Um, so that's just the last point to add on to, to what Zach outlined. And uh, did you have follow up there, Rory? I got a question. Okay. So in terms of leading into a competition and, um, and, and an athlete's peaking, so we're tapering off the RPEs, but let's say like, does the, is there times when the weight on the back, let's say you like squats and, or, you know, weight in the hands for deads, does it start ramping up just for singles, but it's not fatiguing because it's a single or, cause obviously, um, you don't want to jump from a 400 squat to a 600 squat. When you hit the platform, you're like, holy sugar. That was, it's been a minute since I felt that. Um, so how about like, how do you introduce some of the heavier weights without do taking away all the fine work you did, not overly fatiguing this athlete? Because I know that's, that's a huge takeaway right there is not fatiguing. So, um, I know to an extent, it's a tough question because it's going to be different for everybody, but on the whole, is, is there a way you could answer that with how you will have a, a consistent, heavy enough weight in their hands on the bench, squat and deadlift, where it isn't going to be a massive jump from their training numbers when they hit the platform? And have you seen that where, um, is there sometimes a big jump from the platform to training numbers? I think to, to simplify kind of our approach um, in a sentence, it would be to keep your highs high and keep your lows low. I think is kind of the, the approach that we would like to take. So what I mean by that is you're going to have these top sets in your program. As you get closer to competition, those are the ones we probably want to slowly increase the intensity on. So as you get closer to meet, you're still going to be handling greater percentages of your 1RM. And that's going to make sure that you're not jumping from 400 to 600 pounds on the platform because two or three weeks out, you're probably going to consistently handle 92-ish percent, like we were talking about, like a single at eight pretty regularly. So that should not feel foreign to you at all. Um, you can also increase the, the percentage of those backoffs. But again, the thing we often do is like, let's say you start a block with um, fours at 75%. Maybe we go to 80% at some point in another block or later in that block, you cut the reps to threes, go to up to 82 or 85%. Now the reps are doubles. And maybe we maintain the number of the relative volume there, which is the percentage of one RM times the total repetitions performed. But the, the, the average RP is still staying low because we're cutting the number of reps per set as the intensity climbs. So you still get that same exact pattern of normal periodization where the load is increasing. We're just making sure that we make other modifications in terms of the protocols to make sure that that average RP is still keeping it as low as possible because we kind of have a give and take, right? If the, if the intensity of those top sets increases, something's got to go. And if we're not right. changing training volume, we got to make sure that average RP stays low. So that's kind of, like I said, keep your highs high and keep your lows low is kind of the way um, I think is the, is the best way to kind of conceptualize how we think about it. So that shouldn't be an issue if you kind of do it in that way. Yeah. One super quick thing to add is we are very much in favor of keeping top sets in basically year round. Um, that might get a slight bump. Like maybe you go from like a double at seven on average in a hypertrophy focus phase to a strength focus phase. It's a single at eight on average, but just generally speaking, we are very much in favor of regular heavy top sets to maintain that skill year round. Um, so I don't want anybody on the platform having to uh, you know, test the waters with 250 plus pounds compared to, to the last, the last couple of weeks of training. Yeah. And I think it's important to say too, like you said, uh, 
right? And I think, I think it, it does, it, it varies a ton between individuals, like what that exact number is going to be. Like, for example, like Josh mentioned, he, he, his bench is a little bit more sensitive in terms of, you know, aggravating some pec symptoms and, and just what seems to progress for him than mine. I could throw five singles at a nine RP on my bench essentially year round and literally be totally fine all the time. I feel really good with that. I feel really subjectively practiced. I've even done a stint of maxing every single day you know, on bench. And I literally was totally fine. <laughs> like, so I, I can do that. So that's, you know, that's one side of that story where the kind of the way my top sets look are this way, but then we also have individuals and clients that that same pattern exists where we're probably still going to increase things as they get closer to a test, but maybe they're starting at a top set of five at RP six in their hypertrophy block or something like that. And then when they're, you know, a few weeks out, maybe the, the weights that they're touching or like Josh said, maybe that double at a seven RP or something like that, just because they can't tolerate as much heavy loads, maybe for whatever reason, past injury history, or just for whatever reason, seem to get beat up from it. So that does seem to be pretty individual, but that pattern is still going to exist to hopefully minimize the case that again, somebody has to jump 200 pounds on their third attempt. Uh, that's probably not ideal. Yeah. I mean, I've seen both, um, to further your point, like for instance, uh, Amanda Lawrence get, will have like, it looks like heavy RPGs, at least just, you know, you just see the top single work. I'm not, probably the back off work isn't, but then, um, and obviously world champion, she put it together on the platform uh, in spades to say the least. So, so obviously work for her. And then on the flip side, you would have a Sam Calhoun who said, um, I think she had made a post about like, obviously she won the U S nationals went nine for nine. And afterwards said, you know, everyone's seen me grind on the platform and every single third attempt, she didn't have a single, it was so beautifully done. She had, if, if a snowflake landed on that barbell, it, it would have went down. It was right on point and she was ready to grind. So people are like, wow, how much grinding did you do? Because it's almost a skill to know, to fight through, to have a right on point, to have your, your sword that sharpened. And she's like, I didn't touch anything anywhere close in my training. And to your point, it's everyone's different. You got it. You got to like, as a whole, I'm sure it, it still stayed the same type of theme, but um, you start knowing the particular athletes and knowing I don't need you to fly too close to the sun in your training. Uh, that'll actually burn you out where someone else is like, like Amanda Lawrence, you could feed her heavy singles all the time. She'll hit the platform and, oh, will she be burnt out? No, she'll max out even more. She'll take it to another level. So um, yeah, it's somewhat individualized and it's, uh, it's not an easy answer all around. Aaron, I got another question here, my man, but did you want to jump in? Did you have something else you wanted to throw in? I just wanted to ask him. So, uh, how many days straight did you max out bench press? <laughs> so I, I did it for, I only did it for one block because what happened was I didn't get any stronger. I got really good at the same weight though. I got really, <laughs> really good. I, I could, I could grind out the same weight every single day. And I, I took velocity on that too. And it was like, I was hitting like new PR low velocities. Weight didn't change, but I was, I was moving them slower every week. Velocity so, PRs. That's yeah, what exactly. That right, right, right. So I, I mean, I was doing that, but I, I believe it was only for like a block. So it was like something like six weeks, but it was, it was, it was a good experiment nonetheless. I, um, Dr. Zordos and me are actually talking about it and he kind of pushed me to try it. Cause I never had, and it was, it was, it was fun to do. Um, yeah. yeah like I said, it wasn't super successful. I think I could set it up better now. Um, my back off volume was a little weird then. I can't remember exactly what I did, but it was pretty nuts. I think I was doing like 40 some sets a week. So it was, it was ridiculous, but oh, it was, wow. a, it was a, it was a fun experiment. Nonetheless, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Yeah. More, more, more days than me, but not as many as Dr. Zordas. 
Why? What's he got? What's he known for this? What's he got? He's, he's done like over a hundred days straight. And some days, two times a day. So his, yeah. his best expedition at this was um, expedition squat, squatting, <laughs> squatting every day with five sets of volume afterwards, which was doubles or triples at 85 to 90%. So that was every single day. And at some point, he, I think for 50 days, he did twice a day. So he was the man. I don't think he did much training other than that, which he often will admit. But I think uh, he was just squatting at that time. But um, but yeah, was, he, he he's done that. I, mean, I was going to say, it, it, it really kills like your your will to want to do accessory afterwards. And also, depending on how well you recover from squats, you might not want to bench press it in another day. That's why, that's why I just bench press because I knew it was, if I did it on anything else, it was just going to tank everything. So I just <laughs> did it on bench and I, and I was okay. I, I did most of my other stuff, but yeah. Didn't, um, fellas, we talked about it in the group chat. Didn't Ben Rice, the 105 deadlift over 700 pounds? Was it every, was he doing that every day or every, was it just every week? I think I thought it was every day, wasn't it? And it was like 60 days straight or something. It was something, something insane. It was something absolutely ridiculous. Now he can, his one rep tip for perspective, his one rep max was like, we're talking around 800 ish or. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's, he's an extremely strong individual. So a little bit of, you know, this wasn't like a hundred percentile for a platform weight necessarily, but still it was ridiculous. 700 pound deadlift for a, a hell of a stretch. And it, to the, like, in terms of like a velocity, he was, he was moving it. Some days he'd hit it for a double just because he could. Um, yeah, I mean, six pack, didn't you, um, didn't you flip a car every day for like a month or something? Yeah. Well, that story didn't end so well. Yeah. I ended up tearing my calf, throwing up my back. And I was like, this was, uh, this was terrible. That wasn't even, a good, that wasn't a good story. Even if he did like, let's say if he only did like 85% single every single day, you, you and I might think, okay, whatever it's 85%. But there's still so many lifters out there that think they can't deadlift more than once a week. And like, oh my God, yeah. if I if I move them to two times a week frequency, they're like, oh no, I can't do two times a week. And like Ben Rice is pulling, you know, 700 pounds every single day. That's why these things have to be done. Yeah. To tell people, ease up, man. Let me tell you a story about Ben Rice or that <laughs> Thank swimmer. Thank you, Ben Rice. <laughs> that swimmer who did like 350 sets <laughs> that one time. Um, earlier when we were first talking and you were describing this, um, you, you had said how essentially, to, uh, not to oversimplify, but essentially pick your weight and then you're going to move you. You're also going to have the amount of reps you want to get. So let's say the weight is 200 kilos and the amount of reps is 20. And then it's not so much the number of reps in your set that is important, but the velocity. Um, which like made it easy for me to wrap around. Like uh, that's a good explanation. Just wrap around your head. Like, cause people want details and make, listen, let me just dumb it down to a second here. Just as long as the velocity is moving well, you picked your weight, you know how many reps you want to get out of this. So you kind of average, I got 90 minutes. I want to hit 20 reps. I want the bar speed to not stop moving. Uh, I want it like to maintain. And I want around 200 kilo on the bar range to get that kind of work in. Okay. I gotcha. Now we as humans do something to oversimplify by doing this. I've noticed, and we all do it. Does you, and I don't know if your body actually cares or if this is just our OCD naturally, but we will do something like if I'm making my way to 21 reps, I'm doing triples. I'm do seven triples and the bar speed, a whole nine velocity. You guys might know where I'm going with this, but does your body give a fuck if you went 
this, I have, I'm keeping 200 kilo, I'm keeping the bar speed velocity and I'm ending off the exact same work range. But here I did a double, here I did four. Then I came up and did triples. The bar speed never changed. I just went in there and it was moving. I was in the groove. I belted off four, cut it. It was the same, exact same velocity. And I'm ending up, we're on the, we're driving to San Francisco. We're getting to San Francisco. I'm not overshooting and ending up in whatever's below San Francisco. Okay. So we're still getting there. Does that matter? Or are we just OCD? It, it makes it easier for programming. You would never be like six pack. I want you to do a set of four, then a set of two, and then a set of five. I get it. But if I was to do my own programming, walk in the gym, could I actually do that? Be like, I'm looking for this, this weight, this velocity, this workload. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you kind of how going back to my, my old coach, John Hanley, who kind of, again, introduced to me to a lot of these ideas, literally how he would program for me. A lot of the times was, okay, you got 20 reps, complete them in sets of two to four and, you know, get it done. And literally didn't really matter how you did it. Obviously with the guiding principle there, if you're going to do it that way, start cutting the reps per set. If you subjectively fear the bar slowing down quite a bit, that's, that's literally as complicated as it needs to be. The reps per set itself isn't totally, um, you know, important. It's literally just once we have a given weight, I'm trying to comp complete these total repetitions with most of those reps being as fast as possible. It's literally just all it is. And I think the easiest way to do it is like, if, if you're just like, want to not think about this at all, in most cases, it's like, okay, I have a weight, I have a total amount of reps. How many sets am I logistically going to be able to do mentally or time-wise or whatever, whatever your, whatever your thing is, divide the number of reps by that many sets and then go with it for there. On average, you want to buy a set to more sets because that's going to, for most people, cut the amount of bar speed decline, but that's probably the easiest way to do it. I got 20 reps. All right. I can do this in 10 sets. Then that's probably going to be probably the most efficient, but if you only got five sets in you, then you do it in fours. And that's also totally fine. The concept is still the same. We're not doing tens with that load is, is really what we're trying to prevent. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that totally makes sense, but the actual reps you're performing, I don't think is super important. So long as the actual bar speed is staying high for that given weight. And then if you started going down that rabbit hole, would you start finding people doing like, well, then in that case, I'm going to go pretty damn heavy, but singles and for a single, it's not that heavy, but if I end up getting like 20 reps, now, but what are we talking here? Are we going to be here all night then? Like if we, you know, you could start going that rabbit hole, but would that, I don't think there's going to be done any studies like that, but is there times where someone's like, you're doing a shitload of singles because relatively speaking, 500 pounds for your, let's say your, 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 your max squat is 600. So 500 for you for a working weight is work, but for a single is not. And if I want you to do 20 reps of 500, that's going to be a lot of work. But if I just make you do a shitload of singles, so you're there for like 20 singles, it's a single. So you don't got to take all day to recoup and it's your max is 600 pounds, but I'm gonna have you keep going back there. So you get a lot of work with 500. I could never get you to work with 500. If I was getting you to do triples and sets of four, is that actually something that would happen that we see lifters do? I've done that with my bench. Like literally I, I didn't experiment when we kind of wrote this first original article where I told myself I was literally not going to do a set over two reps on my bench press for the entire time and still, you know, use a ton of different loading ranges and stuff, but I just, I did that way. And so I was doing, you know, a ton of singles with 85% on my bench every single uh, session. So it, it's purely conceptually, that makes the most sense, right? Cause if, if I'm doing one rep with a given weight, there's no way the bar's going to slow down. Um, but again, it's just logistically, some people don't enjoy that. And then if we want to bring the research in a little bit here, you can, the way I phrase this is you can probably get away with 
a 10 to 15% velocity loss per set without the, the, uh, the effects being super detrimental. So to make that practical, there's a little bit of velocity loss you can have per set. It doesn't seem to make a huge difference. Mm. So you don't have to be super, super anal about it. There's, so it, like I said, just from a practical perspective, take a given weight in 70 to 85% range. And if you do it for sets of two to four, you're probably going to be fine in 95% of the cases. But that's kind of the a little bit of nuance is that if your bar speed is decaying less than, you know, 15% or so, it's probably from a logistical perspective, a little bit better because you're not doing just singles. And so you can cut your set count down. And that's again, from the focus and the amount of time you need to stay mentally engaged, probably a little bit easier for most people, but no, the singles approach I think is definitely valid, especially at those 85 to 90% loads. If you have somebody that needs a ton of exposure in that loading range to feel practice or for whatever technical benefit you're looking for, I think that's a totally viable option. I'm glad you said There's that. About- at least a couple of coaches that I can think of that, that do this on a regular basis. You know, Matt, oh, wow. Matt Gary does the, does the 12 by one at 80% sort of regularly. I, I have one of my lifters doing sort of some similar loading sort of 12 to 15 deadlift singles in the sort of 80 to 87 percent range on a, on, a, on a regular basis um he hates it of course it's not it's not not super fun um but his deadlift is sure going up and and that keeps him not tired so i i swear i saw uh, i think it was gage the 74 who has a freaking ridiculous deadlift and i believe he had said that he does he's got a working day as well but he's got another day that's just singles where he's ripping singles and um, I, I do like how you said, like, look, a 10 to 15% velocity loss isn't great. So if you want, if you got something where it's like, look, I'm not going to have you do 20 sets of singles. So if you do doubles instead, so you don't have to stay in around doing 20, you're doing 10. And if the velocity goes down 10%, it's actually not going to do too much. So logistically speaking, how much time we got here? We got 90 minutes. This is what I'm going to give you. Do we got all night? You go, you got three hours to give me. All right, you're here, you know, get ready. But uh, here we go. So that makes sense. Um, another one uh, I had, uh, yeah, no, I think I, the, the cluster reps, I think you had cited, um, was there studies about a cluster reps where some people were like, but you said there was variables that you didn't like in terms of the study. Um, I think they did a study in cluster reps where some people yeah, yeah. were like, you can have, yeah, you, I'll let you say. because you. Yeah, that. so there's a paper by Nicholson. That's kind of one that's, it kind of makes us scratch our head. It's like the one that we just don't really um, understand. I believe if I recall correctly, which I, it's been a while since I've looked at that paper, but it was like one group. So there was four groups, but there was two we actually care about. One of them did 85% for like three sets of six or something like that. And then the, the they had another group that did cluster sets with that same load for the same 18 reps where they took, um, they took like 15 or 30 second rest periods um, between every three reps or something like that. I believe that's, don't quote me on that, but that's the rough concept. And the cluster set group had a ton less velocity loss, but they didn't get better strength gains. And that was the one study that um, I think they actually got worse strength gains, if I recall correctly. That was like the one study that was kind of a outlier in terms of all the analyses, but that was, you know, one example where what we're kind of advocating for didn't seem to pan out. Um, So that's, you know, take that for what you will. I would say that there's probably... I don't know how many studies were in the original analysis, Josh. There's more now, but there's a couple meta-analyses that's came out recently that uh, for, you know, the listeners, that's like essentially the 
the highest tier of the hierarchy of evidence, but there's still limitations to that because there's bad studies in a meta-analysis doesn't mean it's great. But in general, it's the highest quality thing we have. And most of those say that cluster sets seem to be just as good as traditional sets for strength training. And so I think we take that from the practical perspective and say, these sets where you're breaking your work up into more into more sets like we've talked about here is seems to be just as good. But in practice, I think there's a ton of theoretical benefits that aren't always captured in a research design mm. um, where the where the designs are really, really, um, you know, uh, rigid to make sure that as many variables are controlled as possible. Whereas in practice, there's a lot more flexibility that can, you know, organically happen over time. If we're doing a protocol that's going to limit fatigue for the same amount of work and same benefit, we can take advantage of that on our top sets. We can take advantage of that um, in terms of how many, how much volume we can perform. There's a ton of things that, you know, don't make it into a study because you're trying to convert control as many variables as possible. But to answer your question, that study is an outlier. I wish I knew the answer. I don't really know. Um, it, it, it didn't seem to pan out the way we would expect, but two, it, when we compile all the data together, it seems to be pretty, you know, in line with what uh, we would expect. So that's kind of, I, I think this, this is helpful to visit considering our discussion about how to think about research as a whole. Um, you know, we, it's, it's definitely not the case that we take a protocol from a study and copy and paste it onto a client spreadsheet mm -hmm. again conceptual you're finding the concepts you're 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 finding the concepts from the research and then integrating that into practice and again there are going to be outliers there's there's you know to to kind of give an overview of how to conceptualize statistics in general think about i know you guys are ufc fans um so if you take the the best ufc fighter and the worst ufc fighter and you have them fight or what i don't know what terminology is if you have them go at it a hundred times, the best UFC fighter, the best UFC, the best UFC fighter is going to win 97, 98, 99 times, but the worst UFC fighter might emerge once or twice. So yes, there are going to be outliers, but you know, I think in that original analysis, we maybe had, um, 16, 15 ish original studies plus a 2015 or 2016 review, which probably had 10 to 20 studies as well. So okay, if we kind of just like, we look at the body of research as a whole, every single study is a piece to the puzzle. We integrate that with anecdotal, um, anecdotal evidence, and, and we think of the concept as a whole and then integrate it. Is that, two, th I, two things to say real quick. First, Dan, ahead, is yeah. probably not, Dan is probably not bringing out Josh to, uh, <laughs> out, out, out to Fight <laughs> Island anytime soon to, to commentate. Kind of that was that. adorable. Wait, but, uh, he goes, if they were going to fight, and he goes, that didn't sound cool enough. If they were to go <laughs> at it. And I was like, oh, my man. Wait, with their pants, pants off, if 14 they were to... degrees Celsius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, if they're going to tussle, yeah. they're going to tussle um, if a Donnybrook breaks out. The, the one thing I was going to say about that study, because I remember it is the one thing we speculated that might be part of it. Um, if there's an exercise that doing too many sets might have a negative effect um, just because you're actually going to get tired. If you think about doing 18 on racks on a squat with over 85% of your one RM, that sucks. Yeah. Like that, that is the one lift that doing this, um, has some logistical considerations that maybe you want to bias the reps slightly higher if that particularly fatigues you on racking that many times. So in that study, if I recall correctly, there was a very, very high amount of unracks because we had to, we, we had to assume that's how they did it. They didn't specifically say in the methods how they um, separated the cluster sets by if they racked it, if they just held there and stood there, they didn't say. Right. So 
we kind of assumed that they racked it and they just kind of did it that way. So that was the one limitation that, you know, potentially if you're doing that many unracks, that could kind of hamper your strength gains because eventually the, the fatigue management benefits that you're getting from separating the reps might be negated if you have to do that many unracks. But that was the one thing I wanted to think of. Uh, yeah. Oral of the story, use the Smith machine. That, yeah, there it is. <laughs> there we go. doubled it back. Yeah, there we go. That's the double back. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I, I remember reading uh, your paper too and when you were saying, um, cause the whole point of like, if you're going to cluster set it for your point, and then I know whoever was doing the study, like you had mentioned, they want to control the variables, but in a lot of ways you can't control it because you want to control it the same for everybody. But when you're doing fatigue, you can't control everybody's fatigue because it's all different. So the way you guys would have wanted it would be, you only put a pause in your set in between reps when you needed to, to keep the, the velocity. So if I got a triple and I'm going for a triple and I'm like, I'm going to pause after rep two for a second here. If it's dead, I'm putting it down, walk back, come back, hit that third. And that velocity didn't change because I took a second. Or if someone, if I smash the first one, walk back, come back, smash the next two and the velocity didn't change because I took a second, but it's only on, I felt it. I need to keep the, keep the bar velo- or I'm rocking and rolling here. I don't need to cluster to this particular set. Next one I do, it's the, what you had said earlier, where you're using this. I don't necessarily care. Keep the, the velocity the same, the weights moving, we're hitting the reps we want, um, doubling back to your original point that's the bigger focus. But if you're just trying to do a study, you might be like, okay, we need you to do clusters. Even if you don't need to do a cluster, like your, the bar speed hasn't slowed, but I need to put a cluster in there. So on your second rep and you're doing things particularly, it kind of changes things. So I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's difficult, right? Um, there's variables where you would have questions and you might not, uh, you know, you, you, they're not there to pose it. You're just reading the paper and it's not in the fine, the fine print. But um, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting because I'd also, when I conceptualize it, I do agree where if you just got your weight, you got your reps, you got to hit and you got your velocity. What does it matter between the, what's the difference between if you, the whole workout is essentially one big cluster set. Well, you'd be, but you'd be better <laughs> off doing fives, but other than that, like if you're going to, if you're going to make the compromise to start, I mean, you might as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But we could go down this whole like inception where, listen, gentlemen, I think we're ready here. Every, every single workout is one huge cluster set. And then Rory jumps in. No, every block is a fucking cluster set. I just, that's how I rate my blocks. 24 hour rest period. That's right. right. I have instant, I've instituted. I mean, this is, I don't know how deep you want to get. That's normal for power lifters. That's right. (laughs) Um, I think we hit, we've had a pretty good discussion there, fellas. Um, we've been rocking and rolling. It's been going nicely. Is there any questions that you, Arian or Rory, you had? Um, cause we got most of what I wanted. I'll, I'll throw out a couple of questions there just because yeah. I, uh, right before this, I put up a story and said like, Hey, oh, so any questions I'll, that you have? I'll also check you. Go uh, ahead. One is more of a, a generic question and they, they can only put so much in the little text box on Instagram. So I'll try and expand on it. But the question basically is like on research studies and what kind of data they have on other populations since they tend to be more on men and basically like younger population they're asking specifically about masters lifters like 40 and up but also sex would be important too are there studies coming out more for different populations like women um or is there is it the data that you can extrapolate to those other populations 
Well, first and foremost, I will say that, um, especially the data on females, I, I, it's not my expertise by any means. Um, I would refer to Greg Knuckles, who I know who has done a ton of stuff on this um, on his website. So th there do seem to be some uh, you know, differences between, uh, male and female lifters. I don't think the, the entire training process needs to change fundamentally. I think that's not really the, the main difference. I think going back to what Josh said about the main variables that we need to kind of individualize, I think on average, the female maybe is able to tolerate a little bit higher of a training dose, and then maybe is able to perform a few more repetitions at a given percentage of one around. But I'm not, again, don't quote me on that not my expertise by any means, but I, um, as far as what I've read and what I understand, I think that seems to be the case, but most importantly, I think most coaches seem to find those relationships to be true on average, especially lighter weight females seem to tolerate quite a bit more training volume um, and benefit from more training volume than, than, than other lifters. Um, like if you take that on the other end of the spectrum, heavier males seem to be uh, lower volume on average, I would say. Um, but that's just, you know, going on off that point, but in terms of masters, lifters and older lifters in general, I think kind of the same thing applies. I don't think the training process fundamentally changes by any means, but there is research on like, uh, you know, elderly populations, depending on how old you're talking, but, um, masters power lifters, I don't, I'm not sure there's any data to, to exist there, but in terms of training differences, it's, it's, I would say it's similar along the same lines. Like the recovery might be slightly different, um, and the overall training dose they tolerate is going to be probably slightly different. So you might make some modifications there, but as far as research and broad scale changes, as far as that's concerned, I, I'm not aware of any research, particularly doesn't to say it's not, it doesn't exist. I'm just not aware of any Josh. I don't know if you are. No, I, I, that's, that's about all I can think of as well. I think generally speaking, the trend is moving in the direction of getting more female cohorts, which is awesome to see. Um, I would also add that actually a decent amount of exercise science research is on older adults because it's easier to get funding There's to study training. those populations. Um, so like, for example, some, you know, some studies examining different training frequencies or different training volumes around those populations. And my understanding, again, I'm definitely not like, I don't know the ins and outs of, of this particular topic, but my understanding is we see the general, we see the same general concepts emerge. So again, we can use kind of what we see in practice. Okay. Generally speaking, smaller individuals, lighter females, your starting point may be a little bit more on this end of the spectrum, but still there's, there's greater differences between individuals than between groups of individuals. So that's why individualization is so important. Again, we're just getting the concepts and the starting point, and maybe we just nudge it in a certain direction a little bit, and then use the individual's training data to, to find what's best for them. So, so maybe going off this a little further, maybe off that idea of individualization, you said the two tendencies that people often see with master's lifters is obviously, you know, hypertrophy or muscle mass goes down because there's, as you age, you're just going to lose more muscle mass. And then two, typically you'll see the bar speed go down. They move at slower speeds. You don't see them move very fast. So would basically the protocols be the same? It just adjusted for their, basically their bar speed. That's interesting. I mean, I've, I'm going to be totally honest here. Like this is totally off the cuff and not something I've thought about at all. Um, but in general, I, I would say one of the additional benefits of kind of the lower fatigue drop in average RP that we've talked about um, is that that probably is even more applicable in the case of like real sports and power training and speed. So 
if there's anything that's going to benefit, you know, that those kind of qualities in older adults that they seem to lose over time, it's probably that. That's not to say that repetition speed at a 1RM is related to your, um, you know, like rate of force development with 60% of 1RM because those are two different things. But there are arguments to be made that um, improving your rate of force development might help your ability to, to grind at a one RM and then also improves your ability to move a given load faster. So I, I think, um, I think those concepts probably merge well with older adults and, and in general, just kind of the general research that I'm aware of, like power training and stuff like that seems to be pretty helpful for them in terms of fall risk and stuff like that. So again, we're talking about masters powerlifters here that are probably not going to have to deal with as many of those issues. Um, and also from the muscle mass standpoint, training in general, I think, mitigates the loss of muscle mass, uh, risk a ton. So if they're resistance training in the first place, that's going to help that tremendously. Um, and, and if they're, you know, dialing everything in, they're training hard, appropriate volume, solid protein intake, that kind of stuff. I would not think it's out of the possibility to gain muscle mass either if everything's on point. So yeah, that's just kind of my off the cuff answer, but again, not super well rehearsed. So exhibit a, everyone look up David Ricks. Oh, Jesus. Dude. <laughs> Monster. Monster, man. For, for the uh, second question, it was actually submitted by Rory over here. And and as we mentioned before we came on this podcast. Did he, did he not plan on coming or what's going on? <laughs> I, I don't know. Or if you wanted me to wanted ask to make for... sure that Ari and had actual responses to his, his stuff. Uh, he didn't like, feel like nobody cared about it. So. Before, we, before we started the podcast in the chat, we talked about how this is very data-driven podcast, very serious. And so Rory's question is, how many four-year-olds could you be in simultaneous unarmed combat? Is this now who's this for? Zach Bo- or Josh? For Bo- like, can I say something? The way Josh hesitated to say the word fight doesn't give me a lot of confidence. In I was just gonna say you gotta aim it towards him because I gotta see his fighting response here. here. I want to see him go at some four-year-olds. Uh, and, and, and Roy said, "Could you best?" So it's not just fighting them, but you have to be able to, to actually win. Win. To win. So yeah. How many of them? would be the limit can you, def- RPE can you define can you define win? rpe 10 I- rpe 10 what the fuck out, out of okay can i define oh. what can you define win that's right maybe well, there's moral victories there's moral victories fellas come on let's open it up a little bit um if you, you can define that however you want man <laughs> <laughs> 60 seconds you're on the clock there, there is no winner in this fight is the answer if that's that's the real you, you lose by engaging <laughs> you lose by engaging I, yeah. I think i think i'm thinking of this question way too seriously yeah, that's right uh, <laughs> he's, he's like fellas give me a minute because i take my question I'm, seriously listen i'm trying <laughs> listen, to think ryan. of how large a four-year-old is <laughs> listen ryan this be- this becomes a serious issue at greater can I, numbers can i say something is ray williams four-year-old watch yourself he's a he's fucking huge he's- but but just think about the number of four-year-olds, Ryan. Like at a certain point, like if they're all crying, that's a high decibel output. Like you're you can right. be like losing your, your ears right there. What Listen. if they're all what if they're all pooping and you have to inhale that, Ryan? That could all knock right. you out. You put way 300 four-year-olds like throwing pebbles at you at the same time. Like that would be really annoying. <laughs> what if they, what if you're in a room and they're crying and the room's slowly filling up with their tears? Okay, we just totally derailed this. I can't use any of this. I'm sorry, fellas. The whole podcast is off. King of Lifts editor, please edit this out. That's right. That's right. Um, I got one. I think this isn't live. (laughs) A common question I got um, is in terms of incorporating assistance work slash bodybuilding work, how much of an emphasis do you guys put on doing lifts? Because we talked about specificity specificity a lot, man. It's getting hard to talk now. Um, But how often do you put a focus on that in terms of your, your programming? A ton, a oh, ton. Really? That's actually 
that's actually probably one of the biggest changes we make when starting up with a new client is getting them to kind of train like a bodybuilder in a sense. Um, so a lot of people, you know, especially it seems to really be the case for the deadlift. A lot of people will do four to 10 sets a week of just the deadlift. And if we think of the deadlift, a, a it's generally a short range of motion movement. B we're typically not controlling the lowering portion, the eccentric portion. So I think a lot of people's hip extensors, their posterior chain, primarily their glutes and their hamstrings are very underdeveloped. So something that we like to have a lot of clients do is, is some very strict stiff like deadlifts with a controlled eccentric. And we almost see like noob gains in terms of posterior chain hypertrophy. And often that will, will, will drive one rep max strength up. Um, so, yeah, so to answer the question, we, we, again, we very much, uh, are of the opinion that your, your biggest, your best investment for long-term strength gains is getting the prime movers as jacked as possible. And for some people that's going to be that you can accomplish that pretty well on, you know, a competition squat competition bench press. But when you get somebody with a massive arch or they're extremely bent over in their, their low bar back squat, they're not going to be growing their pecs and their, their quads super efficiently per set. So in, in those cases, we will get them on something that's a little bit more quote unquote hypertrophy friendly. So to answer the question, it's a huge emphasis of ours. Um, and it's also very individual dependent. The only thing I'll add there is that I think those exercises, we spend a ton, a ton of time um, individualizing those to the person. So like in, in, on average in a training session, like if somebody has to squat and a bench in a training session, most of the time they're going to have like a skill slot is what we call it. So like a competition squat, pause squat, tempo squat, something like that. They'll do some work there. And then almost always they'll have a hypertrophy slot immediately after that, that is individualized to them. Like Josh said, the leverages are super, super important here. If Josh, for example, gets very little quad hypertrophy out of his competition squat. So his hypertrophy movement is something that's very, very important to make sure that he nails as something that's going to drive his, his quad size, because ultimately that's probably the, the long-term limiter of his squat. So he does a ton of work on the belt squat. I'm sure if you had access to a leg press and a hack squat, Josh, you'd also use those two that are generally more favorable for people for longer leverages because the degrees of freedom that allow them to kind of use their back and use their hip extensors to get the weight up in a squat isn't to the same degree. Whereas myself, I can do uh, like squatting and I get a pretty good quad stimulus out of that. So maybe my options on the hypertrophy slot are a little bit more wide open, high bar squats, plat squats. If you see a Johnny Candido video on that leg press also works for me, hack squat, belt squat, all those work for me because my leverages dictate that to be the case. But those exercises, individualizing those is also really, really important because if we spend a hypertrophy block, which is like my favorite thing on the internet is like people say that like hypertrophy doesn't work for me. It's like, I have a hard time believing that because most of the time, they're, you know, go back to our earlier conversation. They're probably not taking their sets very close to failure on average. And then most of the time they might be using an exercise and then even more important, executing the exercise poorly for what we're trying to accomplish. Going back to the stiff leg deadlifts that Josh talks about, we are super, super strict on people's technique. If your knees start coming forward, you start like not controlling the eccentric all the way to those last couple inches on the floor. That's now changing the goal of what we're, what we're accomplishing with that slot. It's not to put more weight on the bar. That's not what we're trying to do. We often tell our clients to take pride in making a lightweight hard. So like be really, really strict with your technique, make the goal, the goal of that set to really, really drive a solid hypertrophy stimulus for that, um, that movement. 
and then just make sure that the exercise is individualized to so josh isn't doing a bunch of high bar squats when that doesn't actually make his quads uh you know feel like they've done much after a couple of sets so that's the only thing i did i got two follow-up questions um so for those romanian deadlifts you were talking about would you be going like a slower a tempoed like for for that if you're going for that does it matter bar speed in general if you're looking for hypertrophy or or not so the the first question of low uh, like how how slow should the lowering be basically it's slow enough so that it's controlled and so that it's it's the muscles it's almost like a failed concentric in a way right but it's no it's no slower than that basically the the way i often frame it is like as as the plates approach the ground i want you to treat the ground as glass and try not to break the glass with the plates so you should have control over it but you're not deliberately doing like a 10 second lowering um so th so that answers the first question and then in terms of okay does the velocity loss matter on these slots so this is where i get back to kind of our periodization model versus potentially doing it concurrently so our model is that okay far out from a competition when the primary goal is is accumulating muscle mass it's probably our best bet to sets pretty close to failure. Um, that really kind of checks our boxes from a hypertrophy standpoint. But as, as a competition or a testing session approaches, um, we can minimize the velocity loss. So maybe we were doing sets of 10 at an RP8, and then we do two sets of five with that same load for every single set we were doing in the hypertrophy phase to minimize the velocity loss. But again, it's less important on these exercises because the cost of taking them closer to failure from a fatigue standpoint is lower. So you can get away with, you know, some velocity loss, some more intraset fatigue with those um, as a meet approaches. But again, we kind of take the, the periodized route. Fellas, I got a feeling my next few blocks are going to look insane. <laughs> I'm going to take a little, there are going to be clusters all over the place. I got some bodybuilding going on. Um, I hope I'm understanding this. But uh, Please don't say data-driven told you to do all those and, things. And I might even kick the shit of a few four-year-olds. That's on my Saturdays. Um, listen, um, <laughs> another question I have is uh, for, for, in terms of the accessories, so, so far we talked about like belt squats, uh, Romanian deadlifts are somewhat variations of, of the power lifts. Anyway, it's the same type of movements, but would you even go as far as to say like, um, lat pull downs, or if you need to hit quads or hamstrings, would you be in a quad extension machine? Like, cause we're getting more and more isolated. The more we do those, would you go that far or is the benefit in terms of, you know, if you're going to do 10, you know, if you are 30 reps, I would prefer you're not going that isolated when you could still hit the quad, but a little bit extra doing something else, you know, belt squats or the hamstring, et cetera. If you're doing something else, like how isolated do you get when you go into machines and then also tricep work, shoulder work, back work, are we doing like pull downs, lat pull downs, tricep pull downs, et cetera. Yeah. I, th I think the, the first thing to say is there's a time and place for all that stuff, I think. Um, so in general, I would say we definitely like, you know, you're crafting somebody's program. The first thing you're putting in there is the competition lifts or close variants. Then you're going to get those hypertrophy slots that we mentioned that are very, very similar, but they're just, you know, a little bit more non-specific to, you know, check a few of those boxes in terms of execution and all that good stuff. But I would say almost 
every program I write is going to have some sort of accessory work in there. That's very, very nonspecific. Lat pull downs, triceps, biceps, shoulders, first and foremost, mostly because people enjoy it. And I think that's, again, that's important. If people enjoy their training, that's going to drive better outcomes overall. Second, I think there's a lot of clients just want to be more jacked in general, which again, is not a bad goal to have. And then three, I think you can make some cases for what I'm going to call load tolerance for like for power lifters in general. Um, if you're doing some back work, doing some bicep work, doing some tricep work, I think that's going to improve the load tolerance of those muscles so that, you know, you hopefully can decrease the nicks and niggles that you get for hard SBD training day in, day out. And then obviously you can make the argument that growing the size of those muscles can still benefit the, the movements that we're ultimately trying to maximize strength on. So shoulders and triceps for the bench press, obviously that can help. Um, and then from a conceptual basis, just along the lines with everything we've talked about, um, these are a little bit lower, even more than the belt squat and all that kind of stuff in terms of the fatigue they impart. So it's probably even less of an issue if we need to, you know, limit the amount of velocity loss on those exercises, but still conceptually, it might be a good idea to limit it to some degree. So maybe you decrease the RPE of those sets a little bit as we approach a strength test or something like that. But the, the amount of fatigue that they generate is so, so low that, um, that I, I think it's generally not an issue, but, and I would also restrict those, the, those modifications to exercises that affect the prime movers. So like quads, um, glutes and hamstrings, like we said, chest, shoulders, triceps, probably all to some degree. But again, those exercises are so, so low fatigue that I think most modifications don't need to be made, but I think most of our programs feature that kind of stuff in there, even up until like the last couple of weeks until the meet. Um, I, I, Josh, I don't know if you have anything else to say there. No, I think that's right on, especially for like back work, um, you know, less specific work, but I think it's interesting to think about something like a leg extension, because again, we, we highly emphasize growing the quadriceps for the squat. However, I do think generally speaking, we should try to mimic the main lift in our hypertrophy movement. Um, because if we think about where a squat is the hardest, it's at the bottom of the squat, right? Nobody's failing right before they, they, you know, right before they extend their knees fully. So, but if you think about a leg extension, where is that the hardest? It's hardest at the very top when you're, when your quad is, you know, very contracted. So generally, generally speaking from a specificity standpoint, it makes sense to kind of mimic the movement pattern. That's not to say there's not a time and a place for leg for leg extensions or leg curls, but that wouldn't necessarily be the bread and butter hypertrophy movement. Instead, it, it, I just kind of think of it as like any icing on the cake. Mm. Gotcha. Fellas, um, more questions coming from you or should we go into a game of over-under? Was that the game you guys said at the same time? Aaron, yeah. you, you all out of beer, sir? What are you I'm at? All right out, I'm, I'm all out of beers. <laughs> okay. What do we got? What, what are, pick an over under game, Arian. I know we got a couple in the bank. And uh, is, is it only over under or can we do properly? Well, you can, oh, you can do properly. Pro, pro, you can say it's properly rated. Well, no, 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 no. Over under only. No, no, it's got to <laughs> be over under. No, 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 no. We got to, yeah, we got to get, it's got to be binary. We want to polarize it. You Polarizing. can't be as a scientist. Right. We're gonna the, freeze up, man. Scientists these guys, these guys are these guys are extremists over here. But I'm fine with going overrated, underrated, or properly rated as long as you give your reasoning why. Nah, man. Yeah. You're taking all the fun out of it, Arian. 
Yeah, let's go. Let's rock and roll. Grab grab one of those and let's throw it in there and let's dance with it. I'll I'll just throw one out there that maybe has some research on it in the past year or two. Overrated or underrated? The safety squat bar. The safety squat bar. All right. Question. What the fuck, eh? Um. Oh, all right. I'm gonna say a little bit overrated. Which I reason? don't know if I have a great reason. There isn't um, any. I, though. I, That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think, I think for so- I think a lot of, I think for some. Okay, let me take a step back. <laughs> when I'm doing, when I'm prescribing like some sort of secondary exercise, again, kind of going back to that bodybuilding work we were talking about, my goal is often to focus on the quads, right? getting your, your back a little bit stronger, you know, your, your midi rectors will probably help a little bit, but again, I don't think that's really the foundation of strength, um, for the squat. So to me, I think the, the safety squat bar will not necessarily make the quads, the limiting factor for some individuals, but for other individuals, they push those handles up nice and high. The camber pushes the weight forward. They're very upright. It looks like a very nice plat squat, like, like Candido shows. And that's a great quad exercise. So for some people, it's great for others. Eh. I'm more so as, a, I'm more whole, so th- as a whole, you say overrated, overrated. Yeah. Okay. I, I would definitely go with properly rated that that was a choice. Um, no. I definitely, I, de- I know, I know. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to carry out my answer there first. Um, I, I definitely thought more so around the route of um, allowing people to train around elbow and shoulder discomfort. That was the immediate Good thing point. I thought of. So I'll probably say underrated, even though I think it, a lot of people know it's a really good tool, but I'll say underrated just because I think it allows so, so many people, older individuals, people just with general shoulder and elbow discomfort um, to, to continue to train, um, you know, more squatting volume on a very similar movement pattern in an upright stance that allows to get them a better quad stimulus. So I would say that is probably the first thing I thought of. So I'll probably go underrated. Very good point. I um, I've tried it very very little, and I fucking hated it. Yeah. Uh, I hate it as well. I, hate it. I, hate I think it. a lot of that means it's a good thing, it. right? Like, well, I don't know. Like, there's okay, so there's a hate in terms of well, my, I don't have a lot of weight on my back when I do it. So ego wise, I hate it. But then there's a hate of it does like it feels nothing like a squat. It feels like um. They're like, wow, I got a good workout out of it after that mm-hmm. set. It wasn't that. It wasn't that kind of hate. Um, it wasn't a good hate. But uh, there is, though, safety bar, squat, safety bar squats that are low bar now, which... Oh, yeah. The, the kabuki stuff? Yeah. Right. The kabuki. That thing looks sweet. So... Never used it, though. Uh, I've never used <laughs> it. This is, again, I've never used it. Now... So the reason, the benefit to that would be just something, I mean, if your shoulders get roughed up. Um, so it's still low bar. And if your shoulders don't get roughed up, I haven't been able to use it. So I don't know, man, I'm kind of sitting on the fence here, but. Uh, so if Kabuki's listening. Yeah, Kabuki, you know what? They're not sponsoring us, but I don't want to close the door on it either. I don't want to close the door on that. I, I've had um, him on the podcast. Yeah, all right. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to say underrated. Because we're looking for a Kabuki sponsorship. There it is. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm going to say underrated as well for very similar reasons to what Zach said. I think it allows you to get good quad movement 
little bit more, a little bit longer range of motion than you might have in a, in a low bar back squat. It allows you to do that without shoulder or elbow problems. Um, particularly if you crank up the volume on a low bar squat, a lot of people will start to struggle with their elbows or with their shoulders, and then it starts impacting on the bench and so on. So it's quite nice in that respect. I'm lucky enough that we have two in our gym, so we can have sort of a, like a variety of, um, sort of configurations and weights. Um, and I quite like that it abstracts away the weight that you're doing because you're doing it with this sort of like funky esoteric looking bar. And then it actually takes your ego out of it a little bit because like you've only got two plates on there. Like who knows how hard that is or what kind of movement you're doing. Like it's, it, it's, it's just like, it's just like a fake squat now. Right. And so that means that you, you're not tied to the number of like, Oh, I can squat 180. Like I should be able to squat more than like whatever the hell this weight is, because I don't know how much the bar weighs. Um, and so I quite like it in that respect. So I, I think it's excellent, underrated. Excellent point there. That is ox. Honestly, that's probably the, one of the best points too, is there's always something after years of weightlifting, you have certain things in your head. It just fucking happens with the ego that, I can't go below this for squatting though. Cause that's just ridiculous. Like you have certain numbers. I shit you not. I was in the warm up room run time. There's a Canadian powerlifter named Ron strong and they were warming up for deadlifts. And um, it was, it was a lady coach was loading the plates and she had like two, one plates, two plates. She goes, you want one plate, two plate. And he's like, sweetheart, I don't bend over for anything less than three plates aside. <laughs> and I was like, Legend. 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 I don't bend over for any less than three. <laughs> I'm like, my man is from a different generation. It is. <laughs> it is. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think you do have a valid point to all jokes aside, man. If you, when you start something and it's, it's fresh, you're like all pre all preconceived notions are out the window. The scoreboard of that arcade game is completely white clean. You're just starting from zero and it doesn't matter. You're just putting on solid work. I will say, I didn't. I'm gonna change my pick though. <laughs> Just to be a fucking contrarian. Too many people are, are going the same route now. So I'm jumping on my man Josh's team now. Let's go. There we go. Be because you know what? It's just getting a little overrated now in this conversation. There we go. So there we go. I'm gonna come at you for that. <laughs> Goodbye, Kabuki sponsorship. Yeah. You know what? Get out, get out of here, Kabuki. I don't want it. Uh, I brought this up and, and maybe you guys know the research on it. Cause I thought you guys would mention something about the research showing how the SSB wasn't as good because you're training with such lower loads that you're getting, you know, less of a stimulus than just doing like, you know, back squat. I believe they did some acute EMG work on the safety bar squat. I, I have not read the primary research. I know I've seen other people review it, but I, I can't speak to that very well. So I'm going to have okay. to, Right. Yeah, the, the, if if that's what they did, I, which it just be would really really be important how they how they went about that to assess that outcome is is really that what it comes down to is that if they didn't test the percentage of the weight that they were doing on that exercise, the weight could be you know it could be lower in, relative to their one RM on a on a competition squat, but maybe it's like a different percentage on the safety bar squat kind of thing. I again, same as Josh, I've not read that primary research. E so I'm not EMG comment. research is very very. Like I, I personally, I don't purposely avoid it, but I am careful to speak on it because there are a you ton of considerations. Yeah. There are a ton of considerations that I just like, don't feel very comfortable interpreting. And still be really useful. Of course, when you're doing yeah, when for you're, sure. what you're doing, but it's just, it's, it's difficult to interpret for sure. But, hmm. but I, I like all the differences in picks, Ryan. And, and, and I'm starting to go back on my pick too, but I think I'm going to stick with my pick. I'm going to go with it's slightly overrated. And my hmm. reasoning. Well, yeah, we welcome you. 
Yeah. So a few of my reasons are, I mean, it all depends on how you frame this or how you word it. And one would be that, yes, there are plenty of benefits to having the different handles and the different position, everything like that. Um, and especially for general population or someone who's injured or something like that. But I think for a lot of powerlifters, it's kind of like their default, like, oh, I have 10 nice. I'm just going to go to the SSB. They're not going <laughs> to, they're not going to solve the underlying issue. They're just going to jump to the SSB. Um, and, and if there is some kind of issues where like, you know, you're doing SSB every session and you're training with a lot lower loads, maybe there is some issue there. Uh, but yeah, just like that, not solving the problem. Let's just go to like, you know, longer barbells and different shape barbells and just, you know, fix the, uh, put a, put a bandaid on it that way. And the other mm -hmm. thing is just like, like you guys said with, when you're trying to do a movement pattern, you have to do it correctly in order to get the effect that you want. A lot of people go to SSB and, you know, they might be like rounding their back. And I see a lot of times where people pull down on the handle. When you pull down the handle, the weight now shifts from being in front of the midfoot to now moving back towards the midfoot. So now you're making it easier on yourself and kind of ruining the whole purpose of the SSB of having the weight being forward. And so I, I, I don't like that as well, but I do use it for some of my lifters that do have access to it. If they do sometimes have, you know, issues with 10 nice, we, we throw the SSB on and then try and solve the issue or maybe in the off season for fun, just so we're not always doing, you know, back squats and pause back squats and, you know, pin back squats or anything like that. I think it really comes out of the purpose. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm going to talk too much on this. So if we want to go to the next I was, one, I was going to say, Erie convinced me. I think SSB is single-handedly destroying powerlifting. <laughs> That's it. You can. Yeah, if you could buy it's one specialty a, bar it's for your gym. It, oh Jesus! <laughs> so you, you you're you're fully equipped with power bars, ollie bars, all the sort of standard straight barbells that are about two point two meters, about seven feet long. Um, you can buy one specialty bar for your gym. What specialty bar are you buying for your gym? So essentially, it comes down to SSB, duffel bar. Swiss bar, that's the trap bar, uh, trap bar, bar. Uh, football bar. Um, let's rule the transformer bar out because uh, that that ends up being sort of sort of everything in one. I was go. gonna say Big Billy Mac isn't here, but he would definitely say Easy Curl bar. Or Jesus <laughs> Christ, Arian. I'm going football we were, bar. We were all yeah, I got one of those too, but <laughs> but um, oh, do, deadlift bar counts as one of these variation bars. Like if you yeah, could... deadlift bar, uh, like a like a proper squat bar, like the the. 25 kilo like fat squat bars but you can only get one what'd you say zach i'm going football bar i don't i have no other reason rather like other than i really really enjoy neutral group pressing that's literally my entire reason it's a pretty good I, reason I, yeah really I, about it. I think i would I, I would go with ssb because one like i said it is a quick fix if you need to throw it in there also for some of my lifters like sarah brenner she's used it for front squats before people that hate the front rack position so you get two uses out of it. Dude, didn't you say they were overrated two seconds ago? Yes, I, but I, but I, 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 but, but you, you didn't ask me if Delif. I think Delif bars are overrated. I think you know all specialty bars are overrated. Yeah, bars overrated. Where we're going? I'm, this, I'm with you, though. Just get the damn Roga higher power bar and start lifting. Yeah. Okay. What do you say? I'm Josh? with. Yeah. I'm with you. I I'm going to call the SSB overrated and select it as my specialty bar of choice. <laughs> Oh, shit. which which can coexist. Yeah. Wow. Here we go. We got deeper than I now, thought. Of. And, you, guys, and now you guys are politicians. Yeah, that's, <laughs> right. that's right. You're we playing have, to your demographics. We, and I don't we like may, it. We may have like lost it. the Kabuki sponsorship, but Rogue, that's if you want to sponsor us, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> you see how we're playing it. Um, you know what, man? I'm going with a deadlift bar. I want to see what I could. I, I, I've done it here and there, but I've never actually been in a gym or owned one where i'd put in like a block on it and 
I've seen some differences. Like I remember some people, like I remember John hack when he went from the IPF to the untested and he started training with a deadlift bar and he's like, Holy shit. I forgot how much more I could deadlift on a deadlift bar. And he's like, I, I mean, he was said like very quickly started working out for him like that. So I've always thought if I got a deadlift bar, how much could, and then, I mean, not just ego right off the bat, but I don't know the studies on this gentleman. I don't want to do another fucking hour on this podcast, but so I don't, I'm careful with what this, but this is an idea. If you could deadlift more on a deadlift bar and we know you can, so that's not really an if, but you deadlift more on the deadlift bar over a period of three, four months, you're shifting more weight. So in terms of your force, the distance is the, uh, is slightly different because of the bend on the bar, but you're in the middle nonetheless. And it, so the distance, the speed, but the mass is a little heavier. So the I would, load's a I little would say more than anything. Think of the muscle. Right, yeah. I would say more than Go anything it, right, right here is where that's going to benefit. I think I could see a pretty solid rationale if you, like it's a barbell, so it looks relatively the same. Obviously the mechanics are different, which is why I think the, the extra additional loading, I don't really think that's a, great argument because technically you're testing a different joint angle right so i bet if you like th your strength hasn't changed at that joint angle it's just the exercise is different so it's like comparing a pause squat versus a competition squat does you know mm. it's, it's just it's kind of two different contexts oh. but i think you know if the barbell is loaded and you see more plates on it and you can consistently lift that and you gain the confidence and the mental approach to the loads on the bar like bryce lewis did a really interesting experiment with like trash bags i don't know if you guys saw that yeah. it's kind of a similar concept but kind of in reverse if you can consistently put weights on the bar that you're looking to lift on a stiff bar and you're able to lift them on a deadlift bar i would assume that that psychological approach could help you when you go back to a stiff bar even though the mechanics are slightly different just purely from a psychology perspective purely based on a physiological perspective or like from the benefits of external loading i don't think it'd be hugely beneficial outside of just variation in general. Maybe that is a good exercise for you to help fix some tech technical cue on your stiff bar deadlift or something like that. That's just where my head went. Josh, I sound like you're going to say something. No, you covered it. Man. Ryan, yeah. just do just do like two inch block pulls for like 12 weeks straight and let us know how it works. Ain't the same, homie. I'm, I got <laughs> to tell Ryan why, why he's wrong. So from a, from a 15 millimeter block deadlifting, I can consistently deadlift 10 to 15% more than my from the floor max and some, and, and for lower RPE, like huge difference. Right. And so I don't want a deadlift bar in my gym because now I can walk around with the ego going, if I pulled on a deadlift bar, I could pull 300 and I, I never have to burst that bubble because I don't have a deadlift bar. So I can't test go. it. So, um, we just gotta, yeah. <laughs> so, so therefore I'm going to take a safer squat bar. Perfect. All right, fellas. Well, there we go. We just played the over-under game. I think that pretty much wraps it up. Unless there's anything else we should... Is there anything else we haven't covered anyone feels? All right. I don't think I don't think so. You guys asked really, really good questions about the concepts. So good on you guys. Yeah, thank um, you. Thank you very much. Cleared up a lot of Listen, stuff. Thank you, guys. I mean, you guys have been all over the place in the last little bit, it feels like. Um, if not all appearing on videos and podcasts, um, and I'm sure you're going to get more and more requests to come on podcast. You guys are good speakers, man. Not just for like, you, you know, you think like, obviously, you know, you shit, you came prepared, you you've done your due diligence, but personality wise, you're good for podcasts, which I wasn't sure. Look, 
it's it's data strength. So you're you're wondering <laughs> if you guys are going to show up like you know. But you guys are funny, engaging, and um, and this is this is great, man. We crushed like two and a half hours easy. So you guys should be make this my dating profile or something. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, the last thing I just wanted to throw in there. Uh, I want to put the very beginning, but Ryan wouldn't stop talking. Is a a little bit of a connection that you may or may not know of. Is do you know how I got into powerlifting? I know, I know everybody first. knows that it's myth it's myth mythology and power, no. circles no they they may know through the connection you, you went to florida state right yeah i went to florida state yeah so i'm assuming you've trained in the glorious og muscle lab at <laughs> the, some point yeah I, I met i met dr zoros when he was getting his phd thesis there and he's the one who knew of usa powerlifting because he's from maryland and he knows matt and Susie gary and they're like we're gonna go do a powerlifting competition so because of dr zoros i got into powerlifting and that's why I did the studies at Florida State and Florida Atlantic University. And then I hear, oh, there's these, these guys out of Florida Atlantic University that are like, you know, coaches and stuff. And then I heard about you guys and saw you on the podcast. And Ryan's like, yo, we're having them on. I'm like, oh, cool. So technically, you know, we're all under the, the uh, coaching tree of Dr. Zordas. Brethren. I'm standing on his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> He's very short. If everyone, no one knows, that's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but that also done. but that also means i'm like an hour south of you so maybe when the pandemic is over we can meet up in person one time oh yeah absolutely dude yeah, yeah. I, I just just to be clear we don't want to talk too much dr zordos will never listen to a fitness related podcast ever but he's he's the man um i don't want to get his, don't want to let his head get too big but he is, he is indeed the man <laughs> perfect perfect um nice origin story arian uh okay so how does anyone get a hold of you if they want to do some some training with you guys so the, the best spot to do so is to just go to the links in our bio on Instagram. You can inquire about our services, um, check out any articles we've, we've written um, both on our website as well as other websites and any videos um, we've been featured on, et cetera. So the, the kind of hub is Instagram. And then from there, you can find our website, subscribe to our newsletter, all that good stuff. Podcasts, the whole nine, everything's on there. Podcast as well. Yep. Beautiful. Yep. And Rory Arian, I know you, I ask you fellas um, every time, but if you guys could say how you people can reach out for coaching from you. Okay, first, um, so you can find me on Instagram, R-A-W-R-Y-L-Y-N-C-H, Rory Lynch, and my website, sisyphusstrength.com. I put some free stuff up a couple of weeks ago, and I can see a few people have started downloading that. So check that out. Cool. Uh, on Instagram, Coach Arian K, and uh, website, thestrengthguys.com. Beautiful. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks for coming in cool. for a Friday. We, we appreciate it. it. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Love to have you back in the future. Have a good one. Yeah.